This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information, the ideas, the insight you need to grow healthier, happier lives. Welcome to the program. Another great one today. Today we, um, we're we going to be getting into some really interesting uh, research done by a Brigham Young University professor, along with some professors from Cornell and LSU. It's a new study about the working class poor. And what they're finding out is a lot of the people that are poor, living below the poverty line, they're not just sitting around looking for a handout or a check. The research shows they are actually working. They have jobs. They probably also, they tend to be single moms who are trying to stay afloat. And um, we're going to get some interesting insight that I think will blow all of our minds when it comes to the poor. Because a lot of times in the news, the media, you hear, you you think of one thing, um, you think of somebody being poor, living below the, the standard of living. You think of, you know, you have certain beliefs prejudices, paradigms about them. So we wanted to to give you a real inside look at what's going on with those that are truly suffering financially. And uh, so joining us on that will be Professor Scott Sanders, Dr. Scott Sanders from the sociology department here at Brigham Young University. He was one of the authors of that study. So we'll get to that. But before we do that, let's uh, get to some of the other headlines, some of the interesting news around the country. Terry, what you got for us today? Today, I want to see if I can uh, make you feel that maybe you haven't spent your time wisely. Well, duh. That maybe you can do more. Jeez. <laughs> oh, Are you my mother? No, but this Did my uh, wife call you? This 17-year-old has accomplished more. Oh boy, what? Than the vast majority of anyone you know. Really? By far. His name is Moshi Kai uh Calavan or cool. Calavan. C A V A L I N. Cavalin or whatever. All right. So Moshi. We'll just call, Let's it, call him Moshi. His name is Moshi. He's 17. He has two college degrees. He's too young to vote. Oh, yeah. He flies airplanes. He's too young to drive a car by himself. <laughs> but he can fly, a, he can fly an he airplane. He can fly an airplane. He, he, life is filled with contrast for the, I think he's now 17 years old, from uh, San Gabriel, California, who has dashed by major milestones at his age, uh, as his age seems to be lagging behind. He's graduated from community college at age 11. Four years later, he had a bachelor's in math from uh, University of California, Los Angeles. What? This year, he started online classes to get a master's in cybersecurity through uh, Brandeis University. He's decided to postpone that pursuit for a couple of terms, though, while he helps NASA develop a surveillance technology for airplanes and drones. Moshi. He also just published his second book, (laughs) drawing on his experience as being bullied and plans to have his pilot's license by the end of the year. Unbelievable. He says, my case isn't that special. It's just a combination of parenting and motivation and inspiration. Yeah, no, Moshi. So your your relationship expert is yeah, what I always yeah, call you, and then yeah. you kind of give me that look like, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in general terms, can you motivate, inspire, and parent a child to achieve this? No. Can I? Are you asking is, me if I personally can? in general, can, can, a, can a parent do well, this? Well, apparently a couple of them did. Well, you, can, you have to have a motivated kid, though. Yeah. 
you can't. Um, I I don't really have a lot of confidence that my kid is going to fulfill these this well, list of and let me just say, and I love Moshi. Don't know him, but he's a freak show. Okay, because he's amazing. Like, what is that, Mike? What were you doing at eleven? I was running around the neighborhood with my yeah, friends. He was not graduating. Doing homework. Yeah, he's graduating community college. Yeah. I mean, at whatever, at 14, what was he doing? UCLA with a bachelor's degree in math. Yeah. What were you doing at 14? Not talking to girls because they were scary. That's right. <laughs> it's like, so he probably, I, I think what it is, is it's, it's probably really good parenting meets really good potential. And it, it converged and they created something. But now everybody that's listening to this is thinking, okay, sure, Mo, she's great. But what's he like socially? He's probably a misfit. It doesn't really get into his uh, social aspects. Just talks about his accomplishments. Right. But, you but he's think, writing a book on bullying. Being bullied. So there, I mean, there's some indicators possibly. He, he sounds like phenomenal, except everyone, everyone's going to say. But yeah, but you don't want to move your kid along that fast because you want him to develop. I mean, they've got to develop. There's certain things you can't know at 11, even though intellectually you're able developmentally you still have to grow you still need to experience life and spending your 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 developmental years you could call them with your face in a book doesn't right. really allow you to have that experience. Well, and then so. there's the whole other side that's about yeah but can he catch a ball i mean come on yeah can he has he slid into second base but if it's something he loves to do Right. Are you supposed to get in the way of that? No. I'm not. I'm not sure how you parent someone who wants to. The guy's move flying, and he's going to fly an airplane. Fly an airplane. Yeah. He's helped NASA develop surveillance technology for airplanes and drones. <laughs> That's crazy. So, and he's got two books. That's. I mean, it, it's, I mean, how many books have you written? Zero. <laughs> Moshi. He's a stud. Moshi's parents say that he was always quick. At four months, he pointed to a jet in the sky. And said the Chinese word for airplane, which ended up being his first word. What? Yeah, his first word was in Chinese. Moshi <laughs> hit the limits of his homeschooling after studying trigonometry at seven. Oh my! I don't know if I ever got to trigonometry. No, I'm pretty sure I didn't. Uh, go this. What? Then his mom started driving him to community college. She says, "I think most people just think he's a genius. They believe it all." Just comes naturally, says a former professor. He actually works harder than I, harder than I think any other student I've ever had. Still, Moshi was a surprise when NASA called to offer work after rejecting him in the past because of his age. I needed an intern who knew software and knew mathematic algorithms, said his boss. I also needed a pilot who could fly it on a Cessna. So they needed someone to build it and then put it on a plane and then fly it and test it. And it says after he finishes his master's from the, the college, Moshi hopes to get a master's in business at MIT, but he says he'll wait until he gets his doctorate to find a girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, Moshi. I'd, I'd, I'd slow it down a bit. Is he moving too fast, do you think? As a parent, <laughs> would you slow your kid down? I'd slow him down a bit. I, well, I mean, as if, but if he's loving life. So there's this thing called Flow, Psychology of Optimal Experience. It's a book. By a guy named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, hmm. crazy name. Wow! But he teaches that you know when you're in your optimal state, you're being tested. Things aren't easy. You're being stretched. It's hard, but you're challenged and it's exciting, and you get in this state of flow. So Moshi's probably in flow. So you don't need to slow him down. But remember, the brain doesn't mature till you're 25. So Moshi knows everything, and apparently is genius. 
But, you know, he's not 25 yet. So, his, you know, this is where they, they they just have to get time under their belt. Wow. Holy moshi. Yeah, just like that. He'll get his doctorate, then he'll get a girlfriend. Yeah. Then he'll worry about How old will he be when his doctorate's done? Do we know? Um, It doesn't say, but, you know, he's probably going to be about 21. Wow. He's 17 now, so. Yeah. That's, <sighs> I want to be like Moshi when I grow up. At 17, I was like, I just need to get to college. Yeah. Just get to college. At 17, I was still trying to figure out how to take the cap off my pill bottle. <laughs> it's, it's childproof. I can't figure this out. Uh, Mom, you know, but again, too, he's a, he's got to be a genius, doesn't he? Yes. He's he's a. But then his professor says it's all hard work. He. I mean, there's well, a, there's no. a certain extent, but then there's how much you can actually yeah, it's absorb. It's probably both and run with. But if your first word is the Chinese word, Chinese for word for airplane. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you're an exceptional person. His, I'm assuming his parents speak Chinese. I'm, I'm hoping he absorbed that from he somewhere. Just pick it up from yeah. the babysitter. <laughs> he picked it up from the ether. It was just floating yeah. around. Oh, he picked Chinese. it up at the Chinese restaurant while they were having dinner. Man, what a cool! But I love that story because it also tells us that that there's those exceptions, right, on this earth, and they're walking around and they're right there, and yet it also makes you wonder what your kid's potential could be if you, you know, pushed a little bit more. Yeah. So share the story of Moshi to your kids and have them, you know, do their chores. Holy Moshi, that's fantastic. Get them motivated. It's actually a really good segue, maybe for our next uh, guest. Um, we're going to take a break, come back, but next uh, few minutes we're going to be talking. With uh, and and replaying a, a wonderful interview that we had with a BYU sociologist who uh, is Professor Scott Stan- Sanders here from BYU. He's going to walk us through a study that he he did with some other professors from Cornell and LSU um, about America's poor. We have a lot of preconceived ideas about who they are, about what they uh, do or don't do for their money. And the study is going to enlighten us about what really is going on with these people that are in these low-paying jobs and how badly they're struggling to support themselves and their families. So stick with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Scott Sanders. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. And as we've been doing all day and uh, we will be doing throughout the week, we're interviewing and actually, sorry, replaying old interviews of some great interviews we've had on the show. Uh, Today is no exception. Did you know that as of last year, 16 million children were on food stamps? According to the U.S. Census Bureau, that is the highest number since the economic tumble in 2008. According to the Agriculture Department, around 46.5 million people received food stamps last year. According to the new study by sociologists here at BYU, Cornell, and LSU, the majority of the United States poor aren't jobless, and they are not bumming around. They are working at low-paying jobs, struggling to support their families and themselves. Uh, In this interview, I interviewed um, back in July Dr. Scott Sanders, who's an assistant professor of sociology at BYU, who co-authored the study Work and Occupations. And when I interviewed him, the question I asked him was simply this. I said, you hear on the TV news programs if the poor in this country will just quit begging for money and go get a job. Now, but you're telling us because of this study that the poor are actually working. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, this th- this is one thing I really liked about starting this project on working poverty is, uh, you know, I teach classes too on poverty, and, and the, the typical perspective people have on poverty is a panhandler standing yeah, on the side exactly. of the road. We'll work for food, and inevitably you hear stories hear stories about, well, I know so and so, and all they ever did was just mm-hmm. milk the system; they never worked. But what we found in this research, we're looking at working poverty. And and it's a little more complicated. We've tried to, to flush out how that gets measured and to find the best way of measuring it. Uh, but what we found is most of the people who – the majority of people who are living below the poverty line. And the poverty line in the United States roughly is 24000 for a family oh. of four. So we're not yeah. talking extravagance. Right, right. right. But most of the people ha- have a job and are working. And so a better – picture of poverty instead of thinking about the man on you know panhandler side road we'll work for food a better image of poverty is the person who took your order at a fast food store or that Mm. checked you at a grocery store yeah that's what american poverty looks like today and we don't most of us don't experience that because when we were working at a restaurant a fast food restaurant we may have been a 17 year old kid the rest of us i mean it seems like we just have been handed a better opportunity If, if, if somebody's gone to college that very idea is going to dramatically improve their ability to get out of poverty, isn't it? Yeah. Or is that still real? Well, that's and that's that's part of uh, what I think is really interesting about this and some other research I've been doing on looking at poverty is, is the American dream still is it real? Reality, yeah. Right? So for, for myself, you know, my parents came from very small towns, were able to work they, their way up. I benefited from that. I'm hoping my kids work on it. So there's this intergenerational exchange mm-hmm. and, and improvement. And the reality of can somebody from a small town with poor families and a poor background, can they still climb them their way out and make something of themselves? That that's begs the question. That's a question you know that's that's uh, you know a lot of researchers are looking at. And with this working poverty research, what we found is it's not looking that way. Yeah, you know, a lot of people are, are trying. They're they're doing their best, and they just can't provide enough for their families. Is it? And then this gets into the big discussion where we were having over minimum wage. Is it? Is it that we're not paying those jobs enough? Is it that they need more training? Do they, I mean, would it be a better investment that we train these people to get them out? Or is it a better investment that we just pay them more to stay where they are? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I get that a lot. And I think one of the things we need to look at is some of the assumptions. So to, just real quick, working poverty means you are – we looked at the working ages, so 18, 16, 5. So okay. we're not looking at those teenagers right, that are right. – you know, like when you and I were, you and I were awful jobs burgers, when right. we were te- teenagers. 18, 65. Uh, then we ran. Uh, then you need to pick. Uh, are you going to look at it ahead of household measure or a whole family? Mm-hmm. Everyone pooling the money together, and then what poverty line you're going to use? Okay. And we did 126 different measures to try to say here's everything possible out there. Wow. What can we call working poverty? And based on what assumptions you're going to be making, changes what policy you want to do. Okay. And that's kind of one of the things why this that's paper, the gamesmanship of politics, though, exactly. right? So everyone's using different numbers, oh, and that's that's the thing. You know, that's got to drive you crazy. It drives me nuts. I hate like presidential elections <laughs> yeah. where they say, "Well, my you know my statistic says it's X, and yeah. we need to do therefore oh. we need to have this policy." And then the other person says, "No, no, we found it's Y, that's and right. so we need this policy." That's right. But to show you some, to get back to your question about minimum wage and how this might help working poverty. If if you decide to use uh, a poverty measure where you're looking at heads of household, so we're trying to say we want to create a system where an individual can go out there, get a job, and provide for their family, and and that's if we're using that measure of, of working poverty, we're finding um, a lot of people, millions of people, um, are still in working poverty. 
If you're looking at individuals, you may want to look at working at, at minimum wage. Okay. Now, I'm not a labor economist. Yeah. You can discuss whether that's going to create jobs or take jobs away. We actually away. have one coming on, I think, tomorrow. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. they would know more than I would yeah. about that. But, but it would. There's an ethical issue. So there's an ethical issue to that. Do we believe the American dream, where an individual can go out and and um, provide for family. If we want that to be there, then maybe it's more than just an economic issue. Right. Maybe there's an ethical issue with yeah. it. If we're going to measure pe- working poverty looking at a whole household that we say, well, we think every able-bodied person 18 through 65 should be out there contributing to the, the welfare of the family, then we're pushing and promoting a dual dual spouse yeah, that's right. employment. So, so it's then now household to, income. Then we need to start thinking about child care subsidies. True. And so you can see just how, you know, again, 126 different measures. Yeah. Changing subtle things will drastically change what kind of policy you want to implement. Well, and honestly, who's even – I mean, go state by state, city by city, country – or uh, government by government. Who's – we're not even on the same page. Yeah. We don't even know. It just kind of depends what city you're in too, right? I mean, and it depends what the federal government's going to push and who's the president this year. And I mean, it's – it's so up in the night. It seems like – this is why you made a really good point off air. This is why Bernie Sanders is starting to gain some traction yeah. because he's sitting there talking about the disparity of incomes and the, the lower the, the lower producers, the poorer, the poorer are getting poor. Yeah. They're not digging out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, and I think um, that's, that's where I think it's fascinating looking at that Bernie, track, Bernie yeah. Sanders traction is because I think he's, try, he's starting to reveal – what this paper and some other research I've been looking at on on poverty is starting to show that that uh, American poor is a different picture than mm-hmm. what it was recently. And you're right, like the varies. We have federal programs, we have state programs, city programs, and so people get are getting help in different ways. But but we're we're hesitant. You know, I still hear that a lot. This 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 culture of entitlement. Yeah. That there's these people are just deadbeats and right. don't want to work. But that's not the case. And and you know and uh, some politicians are starting to shine that light, saying, "Is the American dream a reality anymore?" And and I, if I'm being honest, I'm a little pessimistic. Well, right yeah. Now. If that, you look that, at your data, yeah. Right? You know, like I can and and it's you know it's sad. I, I've gone and done research in in uh, you know different little towns all throughout the United States. Mm. And there's some areas I just think like the statistically speaking, the likelihood of a kid coming out of here and and really making it as low. Is that inner city or is that just smaller town America? That's both. Is it I'm really? more of a I, – I do more work more in rural, rural areas. Do you really? Um, but that's both. Because we, we would assume the inner cities that they're harder to come out of. There's a lot of other oppressive you know, conditions and situations. But you're also saying just rural middle America. It's, yeah. if Because if, if, if you're not educated, you're not coming out of it. Well, it's it's if you think about it, there's different problems, right? So inner city problems are different than rural problems. Right. So if we think about what it takes for someone to get ahead these days, right? We usually just push this education. You yeah. need to get a good education, get a good job. Think about how difficult it is now to get into a good good college. Oh, you know, right. Like the kids are, you know. Um, uh, I, I knew people at, at grad school that their younger brothers and sisters were starting to take, you know, testing. Uh, getting a, a tutored on tests starting oh. in like seventh grade. No, yeah, high school students getting college credit. Yeah, but that's that's only a select few. Exactly, exactly. That, that their parents know. I know I need to uh-huh. push this for my child. I know this is important. That my school has the availability for yeah. it. So some of these more rural areas, they don't have the the, the ties, right, or right. The, the understanding of this is how you play the system to get to where you need to be. 
Um, and so some of the rural areas, you get you get trapped that way. Plus, um, you don't have jobs. You don't have jobs. Yeah, I remember we I did a project uh, in grad school in upstate New York looking at brain drain, the idea of why young people leave their small towns. Yeah. And a lot of uh, post-industrial decay in upstate New York. And we were uh, yeah. talking to kids, and they were like, yeah, well, you know, I'm hoping to be able to get a job at the local, you know, it was Home Depot. Because, oh. like, really, you know, realistically, that factory shut down, that factory shut sure. down. I don't want to do the military and I already messed up, and I only have like a B average, so I know I can't get into a good school. So, so that, brain drain. The people that can leave, leave those that can't yeah. stay. stay. But if but if the economy drops, if business drops, if factories close, it yeah. just shrinks. So that's the issue facing rural America right Interesting. now. Is is that is that that's that 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 the loss of 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 human capital of, of the smart ones leaving the town. And then economies being you know consolidated yeah. outside of some of these small areas. Well, and but and then that's what I really want to blow up is this idea that they're they're just not working hard enough. So I mean, a lot of this is just opportunity. It's the, the opportunity's not there. The, the the situations are right. Sure, if you were super driven and uh, had this incredible drive, you could probably find a way to leave, go bootstrap it, and make something happen. Yeah. But that's not the majority of people. Yeah, that's true. And that's that's something that's you know, I hear a lot. I'll hear people saying on the one side, Well, I know this family that was deadbeat. Yeah. Or I'll hear the other side where it's like, Well, I knew somebody who was yeah. who was, you know, like raised by squirrels in the park <laughs> and then ended up getting a PhD at Harvard right. and now is a Nobel laureate. Yeah. You know, some other extreme case. And you know, the reality is that those are extremes. They are. But for the average American, for the most of the people who, who we're talking about here, the bulk of America, that that's they're not in those extremes. And it's so, so the, we're, we we don't have the same kind of opportunities. You know, I mentioned to you off air that after I graduated from uh, from undergraduate, uh, my wife started her graduate school, and so I moved out with her. And the only job I could find was was at a, a, a Home Depot, yeah, a college degree guy in New York, yeah, upstate New York, upstate New York. I had good grades, good good <laughs> scores. Uh, the only job I could get was uh, operating a forklift because I got uh, my part time job as a, as an undergrad. I got certified as a forklift operator. Well, are you serious? Yeah. Well, yeah. What, what was your undergrad degree in? Uh, it was pol- political science. International. Well, so you, check this out, Scott. So you stole the job from five other guys that didn't have degrees. Yeah. I mean, that's really what's happening. Is you, there's no other job in upstate New York at the time because yeah. things weren't booming. Yeah. So you had to go get the forklift job, and the, you got the license. But the ten guys. That were from the small towns around Ithaca or wherever. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, they are all like, they don't have anything, and they're like, yeah, these smart kids, you know, get their degrees and they come here. Yeah, and that, I mean, that was the reality. And some, you know, in Ithaca, it was a, sm- a saturated community because of the it's, university. It's a big deal. Again, we're talking with Professor Scott Sanders, who's a so- assistant professor here at, uh, of sociology at Brigham Young University. He got his master's and PhD from Cornell, and then he did some research with um, some a guy from Cornell and one from LSU. What were their names? Brian Thede is uh, assistant professor down at LSU, and Dan Lichter is the uh, professor at Cornell. It's good stuff. We're talking about the American dream, folks. Is it still alive or, or isn't it? We're, we're also getting into the latest research by Dr. Scott Sanders on America's working class poor. We'll take a break. We'll come right back, continue this discussion, but you be thinking about it. Do you feel the dream is still alive? We'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at Dr. Matt Show right here and uh, love to hear your comments on the subject. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends. Uh, the American dream, is it still alive or is it now just, you know, an illusion? Well, for a huge percentage of the population, it's it's probably becoming less and less of a real opportunity. Uh, today we're joined by Professor Scott Sanders, who's a professor of sociology, assistant professor of sociology here at Brigham Young University. He's uh, written a really, I think, incredible study and was a member of a team that put together this study on the working class poor. And the working class poor uh, would be those people, Scott, that they're they're actually working. So the majority of the poor, I guess some of the numbers I saw, there's roughly about 46.5 million people who received food stamps. Mm-hmm. So I guess they're obviously poor. What What are the numbers of those seen as poor, living below the poverty line? Yeah, that's about right. About, about 46, 46 million. million. Yeah. But you're saying about 26 million of those are working class poor. About 24 million. Yeah. 24 if million. You, if you took a if you take a, a definition of that they're um part of a household where um the head of household is working at least part-time or more. Yeah. Then tw- then you have about 24 million uh, men William men William men women and children yeah. living in poverty. So like we talked before, that's below $24,000 a year for a family of four. I mean, if you're a mom with three kids, you and how do you work full time with three kids without? I mean, I guess we then throw our kids in daycare, yeah. which is going to cost unless it's subsidized. Which I mean, how on earth do you dig out? You just can't dig out if you're a single mom. And yeah. I'm assuming a lot of the poor are single women. Yeah, that's and that's what we found is that that women are more likely to be working poor than mm-hmm. than men, and, and that's part of. Part of the problem of when we're addressing this, what do we want to put priorities on? What policies do we want to do? Now we can now we can enumerate yeah. it. How do we help them? And if we think look back at the '96 welfare reforms, that was one of the problems where we had this mentality of, oh, the poor just need a job. Right. Let's just get them a job. Get them They'll work their way out of, uh-huh. of welfare. And what ended up happening is, is that you know it did help people get jobs, but what we had is there's all these single mothers that then have this dilemma of what do I do with my children. Oh yeah, because I'm either going to spend most of my paycheck in in childcare, yeah, or and then my and then they're going to be raised by someone else. So I may as well be home, or may as well be home. So that's the dilemma. That's the ethical issue we're we're presenting to people. Do you want to spend all your money so your kid can be in childcare, or or be on on food stamps? And so yeah. that's it's we're not setting up very positive options no. for people, and we're almost forcing it has to be dual income. So mm-hmm. now we are forcing couples that everyone has to work. To get out where some families might feel it's better that only one of the members, one parent works while the other takes care of the family. Yeah, and that's that's where you know we talk about in the paper that this is this is beyond just an economic. This is an ethical issue. We're yeah. talking about working poor, and so when you have questions like you mentioned before about you know what should we do about minimum wage, well, that's a strictly eth- economic issue. Yeah. If we ethically believe that we should think that uh, a household should be su- should be supported by one person, then we need to say, well, then we need to make it sure that there's jobs out there. Then if, you need yeah. Then you need jobs and better. Pay. Yeah, so I, you know, I've talked to colleagues who do more family research than I do. I, I do more just kind of mm-hmm. poverty, but colleagues, you know, we, when we've talked about these results and some of their own research, one of the the ways we're undermining the families economically, we're not oh, yeah. presenting. Not first of all, we don't have a, a system out there where people can really work their way out of poverty anymore. Right. But then we're penalizing families too because we're saying you can't make it anymore, and so both of you have to go out and work, and the kids have to go in child uh, uh, into daycare somewhere. And true. and that's that's what we're setting up for the American family right well, now. Well, and it's maddening because we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. One at one stage we're saying there shouldn't be a minimum minimum wage simply because 
you know, we're pro-business. Mm-hmm. And at the other side, we're saying we're pro-family and we want to be able to have the family, you know, maybe be a, a single income earner. But the, you can't have both. You, you can't pretend to want minimum – not want minimum wage and not want the, the, the salaries to go up while simultaneously saying – we want to support family. At some point, you're choosing one or the other. Exactly. Sometimes those ethical, moral issues don't line up with that. And that's huge we as we're thinking about presidential candidates because they're going to be – everyone's going to be pro-family. Nobody's mm-hmm. going to sit there and say, I hate families. Yeah. I want them destroyed. <laughs> but our policies make or break that. Yeah. And it's hard because – you know, you, I mean a lot of people would say just – when you just hear the rhetoric that goes on in talk radio and with, all, with our politicians, we hear all the time they're so pro-family. But look at their – look at what they're saying. Yeah. If they're not supporting family policies like making it so that you don't have to – so you have the choice of having one parent stay at home and that we could pull out of this hole – then um, if they're not if they're not showing the policy, then think deeper. Yeah, I hear that. You know, this is this is my personal view of things, but I see this a lot where I'll see people saying we want pro family. You know, everyone again, everyone's going to say pro family, sure. um, but but what? But if you had to rank what they actually are saying, they're saying pro business then pro family, uh-huh, and exactly. those don't always match up. And That's so right. we, we need to be careful when we're or, thinking. Or they about might not say on the other side pro government, yeah. or pro family. And sometimes yeah. we think if you're pro government, you're pro family. But yeah. you're not either. Yeah. I mean, it's like so you can't be pro-business or pro-government. You have to be pro-family first and then create policies that, that are structured right. Yeah, and that's, that's the, like some of this research like this one. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got another paper with the, my, my co-author Dan Lichter from um, Cornell and our colleague Ken Johnson at uh, University of New Hampshire where we're looking at infant poverty. And the reality mm-hmm. is, is there's policies that are made and then it finally affects American people. And these, these pay, this study here and this other one on infant poverty, that's where we see what's actually happening. What is the snapshot of American life? Yeah. And so we can have yeah. these, we can have these new pundits and we can have politicians saying their sound bites that sound nice and pro-America and pro-freedom. But when we really see what the, the numbers are telling us, the, the, you know, from the census, this is, you know, this, we didn't make these numbers up. These yeah. Are, you know, Good numbers that the, the census and other um, you know agencies have collected, we get a different picture of what America looks like, particularly post recession. The, yeah. the, the lower classes just haven't recovered, and that poverty, the opportunity to improve, uh, just is, is is going away. And that's where we see this rise of working poverty, um, where it hasn't been as as, well, as large a percentage of the poor as it has in the past. Yeah, and you you hear. You hear t- talk about jobs and the, the employment rate. None of us really know what the real employment rate is because it's depending on what you're counting. Mm-hmm. But this also makes sense as to why many people might have just dropped out of the rate of the job market simply because if you're poor, you've got to decide: Am I going to go make money to pay for my child care, or am I going to not work? And if I'm not going, I mean, it might just be easier to not work. Yeah, I mean, really, because other than or work part time, yeah, and yet, and then others will cry. Why aren't you working full time? You could work full time, and then, but we don't understand the complexity. We always think just cause effect, but in sociology, it's multiple causes. <laughs> oh yeah, multiple effects. Yeah. This is highly complex it, systems. It's really, really complex, and and that's that's the reality. I mean, if, I mean, I I don't want to put my life in the same life as um, you know some of these working poor because I'm oh. I'm in a different 
boat. But yeah. my wife uh, is, has a PhD too, and we had to sit down and figure out was it worth her continuing her career because of the cost of childcare? Yeah. Was it worth it for what we wanted to do as a family? And we had the luxury of sit backing saying, well, mm-hmm. we could at least live off of my salary. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, but the reality is a lot of Americans don't have that luxury. Yeah. It's, it's like, well, do we, do we not make it and hope that food stamps and some of these other programs can make up the difference? Or do you try to go out too? And then we try to figure out what childcare costs will be because that eats up so much of an income. Uh-huh. It's, it really is kind of um, disheartening when we, we think yeah. about it. If you put yourself in their shoes, let alone like you believed you could get a PhD. Yeah. And your wife believed that. Yeah. I was the first in my family to get I think a master's and a PhD. But I didn't believe I could yeah. until people kept telling me I could. I, I And we came from uh, a single-parent home. So we were, I guess, we were never probably below the poverty line, but we were, we were above it. We were doing okay. But it was my mom working hard and my dad. And, but in the end, I had no idea I could educate my way out of it. Mm-hmm. But it's funny now, though. I guess I was the, one of that small percentage. But I, my kids, by golly, I tell them every day, yeah. you, you, this isn't going to happen easily. And you need education, and yet you have to believe you can do it, and you have to have almost a track record of doing it. Yeah, and that's part of you know the trick of, of this poverty too uh, is understanding – let's say we'll stick with the kids. Yeah. Understanding, well, what classes do I need to take in high school mm. to get ready for a college? How do I apply for college? How do I apply for financial support? Yeah. Uh, how do I pick a major? How do – you know the little tricks that you're supposed to go talk to the professor in their office yeah. to get to know no, them. Right, like, exactly. I didn't know that till grad no. school, right? You're but, supposed to have study skills. Yeah. All these, exactly. all these things that that aren't necessarily there. And that's where we talk about some of these these penalties for the poor is that this isn't this is something that's not known. Yeah. And so it's not passed on to the kids. And so that the ability to be able to work yourself out uh, is is even that much more difficult because you don't have some of these 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 this this knowledge that can be passed on from generation yeah, to generation. Yeah, we keep the poor poor just and, and it's by knowledge that it's not even what's the name for that type of knowledge? It's not even tangible. It's just it's just learned. It's just it, it's not it's not like sitting in a class. Yeah. It's like you should just know that you need to go check on your grades. Yeah. Well, it, uh, my wife was the first in her family to graduate from college, and just that you know she had a mm. you know it's like a, she had to break down all these things. Well, that's not how you do it, and miss out on yeah. certain opportunities. And then her, she's you know one of the older of a big family, so she was able to tell all she's her tutoring. younger siblings, yeah. "This is how you do it. This is what you do." And so they've all been able to be more successful because they don't have the same kind of barriers. But if that's you think about yeah. if you think about that like how do you how do i have a career you know how do you do business uh these things aren't necessarily passed down right you know there's usually an environment people are around and they 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 learn some some tricks of the trade that aren't in a pamphlet aren't in a classroom and those those can make a difference and i think i think when we look at inequality where we're seeing that this this growing inequality in the united states it's this accumulation of that is that we we're seeing some people subtle information some people have been doing this for generations their parents have been educated and and so they know how to do it and get their kids into school, which why wouldn't you? I'm no, not right. trying to belittle No, everybody that. would. No. Everyone's going to try to do sense. that. That makes sense, yeah. But there's a growing population that don't know how to – don't know the value of education, don't know how to pursue it, don't know how to get good jobs. And so that's where we're seeing this increase mm. in the bottom percentage. And you're only a generation States. away from that, right? You're, you're, yeah. you're one generation that, that – like you could be – you could come from a family that's well-educated, well-integrated. The other thing is once you're in that, you're in the system. Mm-hmm. You're in the network. Yeah. And the networks can help you stay in the networks. Yeah. Once you fall out of the network and the education, one generation, you you could lose 
your entire fa- family. You're, I mean, yeah. everybody, all of your all of your kids, your grandkids could just fall into this routine of not thinking they can go to college. Yeah, and I guess you know the positive side of that is that it could be also the other exactly. way. Exactly. That it can flip but it, it. But it is. But it isn't quick, uh-uh. right? And that's something we that you know when we talk about development and poverty reduction, it's never a no. quick thing. It's going to be. We're going to make a change, and then hopefully the next generation will benefit mm-hmm. from those. Well, then you bring in immigration. So then we have more immigration coming in, and then they might fall below the poverty line. And then we're wondering why there's higher crime, why there's all these other things. I mean this is what I think is important to be thinking about is what do we want as a society? You keep bringing up is it a moral issue? Is it, a, is it an economic policy? Mm-hmm. But – we're the ones that vote. We're yeah. the and even if you're just the middle class, quit assuming the poor don't care and they're lazy, mm-hmm. and quit assuming the rich know. I mean, the reality is is we're all in charge of this, aren't yeah. we? So we got to probably push our politicians a little harder and be informed. Like your study, what I love about it is it informs us. These people aren't lazy. A lot of them are just flat out trapped. Yeah, and they're digging. They're doing the best digging they can. But when you're digging at a low-income job, you're not going to dig yourself out of this. Yeah, and I think you know one thing if we're thinking about you know voting and being yeah. informed. One thing that, that this study I think highlights is so we did 126 different measures of working poverty. Oh. If you can get from those different measures, you can have two percent of the population in working poverty, all the way up to about 24 percent. So you can get huge Jeez. range. So think about what's the assumptions being made behind these things. Right. When, when you hear these numbers, when you hear policies being made. What is it assuming? Is it like we talked about before? Is it assuming single parent? Is it assuming right. dual parent incomes? And does that line up with what you feel is correct? There's again, there's economic, what you view economically. There's moral issues, right. and that's up to the individual to figure out how they want that's to pursue right. that. But to under be educated, understanding what those the assumptions numbers are, go what, into those exactly. numbers. That's the thing. See that again. Interestingly, that's an educational benefit. So you go get a PhD, you understand to yeah. not trust any number. Yeah. What, yeah. So what, what, what were the assumptions is how you started. What were the assumptions that led us to those numbers? Yeah. And we always have to t- check the assumptions and check who's saying it. I mean depending on what station you're listening to or depending on what politician you're hearing, there's always going to be certain inherent assumptions. Yeah, and that's where they're, they're usually correct. Yeah. But they're not going to tell you what your assumptions that's are. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and so then you they throw to, the number out yeah. there and everyone's like, oh, OK, yeah. yeah. So what would you suggest, Scott, as we wrap this up? As somebody that studies working class poor, what, what should we – we should, number one, be checking assumptions and becoming informed. What else should we make sure we remember – when it comes to the poor and working class poor and also you know pulling up the 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 working poor yeah i think for me i think what i would say is give people the benefit of the doubt there are always going to be people out there who are going to milk the system oh, yeah. and we're not going to get rid of that so right. when you hear those stories yes that's true but 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 next time you're at a fast food store next time you're at uh checking out at the grocery store and look at the person that's helping you and remember that's probably what poverty is. Mm-hmm. That job, whether they're you know, just still the teenager, that job doesn't make enough to, to feed a family of no. four. And to remember that there, the most people out there are trying. And so we should give the benefit of the doubt. We should, we should be compassionate and maybe think about what we want our politicians to be thinking about and the view that they have of the poor. Yeah. To make sure our politicians that we vote for a way that is saying, I want the American dream to be here. I want that person at the the fast food place to be able to have a better future and their kids to have a better future. So, so give people the benefit of the doubt and remember that the, the, the face of poverty isn't the panhandler. Mm. It's the, it's the person working the nine yeah. to five. Uh, and odds are it's job. probably a mom. Yeah. 
across the counter from you. Yeah, exactly. And she and she's going home to three kids yeah. that are still struggling in school and she's she's hoping she has enough to pay for food that day. Uh, yeah. It's tough stuff. Well, Scott, I appreciate it. It's it's seriously I think powerful insight and um folks, it's it's our life. It's it's ours. We get to we get to go be what we want to be. I would also just add that let's make sure that we're focusing on pro family candidates first. Pro-business second, pro-government second, pro-family first. And you would know that by ask them. Just go find out what do they believe in, how do they, what are their assumptions about how we grow a family. Does that Do we grow a family by having everybody work? Do some people stay home? Can that, can that be a male staying home or a female staying home? Let's go find out what our, what our, uh, what our leaders believe in and what, they, what their assumptions are. Great stuff. Professor Scott Sanders here from Brigham Young University. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, what, a, what an interesting discussion. Again, we sit and we listen to the news. We listen to our politicians. And we just, we get this idea that we know, right? That we know what's going on with the poor. And the reality is we have no clue. We have no clue. Unless you've lived through it and had the fear of making it or not making it, we don't know. We just, but we then throw out this idea like, you know, if people would just work hard, you can make anything happen when you work hard. Uh, sure. Totally agree. And let's throw a little other data in there. If you're working hard to just give up half of your income to take care of your children, you're not working, you're working hard's not helping you. We'll work harder. Okay. So I'll just work harder to then give up two-thirds of my income to take care of my children. Well, you shouldn't have had kids then if you weren't. Okay, great. And life happens. And uh, some things you can't plan for, like let's say a husband having an affair on you or becoming an alcoholic and leaving you high and dry. Well, yeah, but that's why we got to deal with alcohol. (sighs) Folks, we don't need any more judgment. We don't need any more critics. We don't need anybody else telling us how bad the poor are for not working harder, or um, that a policy is going to change everything. A policy is not going to change it because these are complex situations. So when you're looking at your politicians, get very real about them. They might be able to spew a lot of rhetoric and you know sound bombastic like they really have a clue, but do they actually have a heart that cares about what's happening to a single mom in poverty? Because they probably don't. If if you can't relate, you can't relate. And so all of us can do this a little bit better. Next time you're across the, the counter from somebody at your getting your lunch, look in their eyes for heaven's sakes and try for a second to put yourself in their shoes. What is it like to be them with their two or three kids at home and doing everything they can to just give their kid a hope and a dream? And um, 
and see if you can't be changed just by feeling something. Feel. Feel for these people. They're not just a statistic. These are human beings trying to just have the good life you have. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. A whole hour, actually three in a row, folks of uh, tools, information, ideas, the stuff you need to grow a healthier, happier life. Welcome to the program. And man, have we got a great guest uh, that we'll be hearing from a little bit later in the show. Soli Solenberger, that uh, incredible pilot that uh, was has been dubbed the, the, I guess, the savior, the miracle on the Hudson. He's the pilot that landed the airplane in the Hudson River, saving hundreds of lives He'll be on the show in just a, a few minutes talking about uh, the flight, safety, airlines, everything that's going on. We heard about the the disaster that went on with the um, Russian aircraft, 220-plus people dead, and uh, Sully Sullenberger will uh, – we're going to be talking to him, finding out uh, the latest and greatest from him. But uh, other news, you got any news for us, Terry? Well, on that, that subject with uh, Sully Sullenberger. The uh, the other night was the premiere of Supergirl. Oh yeah, your favorite. Remember, by the way, your favorite show. Jeb Bush. Remember the awkward comment of <laughs> she's pretty hot, right? Uh, uh, that the op- one of the opening, I guess, stunts or scenes or they do there in that show is that she goes and saves an aircraft that the engine has failed on it, and she like you know guides it yeah, through a bridge and all carries this stuff. the aircraft, but then she lands it on the water. Why? Because that was the easiest place to put down this burning aircraft. Okay, okay, yeah. Oh, and, you got to put the fire out. Right. And it was the first time that she'd ever flown, and so she was kind of awkward with her new powers and all this <laughs> stuff. So she landed it on the on the, the lake or the river there in uh, whatever town she's in. Yeah. And uh, I'm watching that, and I go, wow, that's what Sully Solenberger did without superpowers. Without superpowers. Because he just landed it right on the water. And without a vice presidential candidate telling you that you look gorgeous or hot or whatever he said. Correct. So he... So, she landed it. Did did everyone walk out on the wings like they did with Sully Sullenberger? I mean, that they was did. like historic. Well, what what ended up happening is she stood up on the wing. Oh, did she? And then a bunch of helicopters because the news helicopters come in. Yeah. and it was at night, and so they put the spotlights on her, and then everyone got to see her for the first time. Oh, yeah. So, are you liking this show? It's all right. Supergirl. It's a show, but it's it's not just a show. It's it's one of the shows. It's the type of show you love. True. Except it's on CBS, so I'm expecting them to ruin it. What? Why would you say that? Because that's what happens. Okay. CBS really isn't the place to drop a uh, comic book show. That, especially when you're a connoisseur of comic book shows. I'm not going to brag, but I, I, I do watch all of them. You've, you've seen every single solitary one of them, and you buy tickets like long before you need to. To certain movies, yes. <laughs> and it's not need to. It's just it's, it's available, and you, you just go ahead and do it. Yeah. Just in case you don't want it to fill up and then you get left out. Yeah. Well, okay. I've never done that. <laughs> I, I mean, I see it for a concert. Yeah. Concert's kind of a limited yeah. thing, limited release thing. But, you know, these movies will be out forever. But if you want to see the movie the first weekend, 
Why would you want to do that? So that when the time you came back to work, if somebody else has seen the movie, they don't ruin it for you. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've never, I've never had that experience. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems kind of like, I don't know. Too trendy, too kind of oh man, geek, trendy, geeky, like so. I just that that, that kind of tied into Sully there as we uh, yeah. as I'm watching okay. Supergirl. I lean over to my wife and I go, "We talked to the guy that did that." And Sully's the stud that just did it, and it's a cool interview because he just talks about how he just did it. Yeah, because you can't practice it. No, he just did it. No one's going to let you land your your yeah. your jumbo jet in right. the Hudson River. Hey, can we practice a little water landing? <laughs> Let's do some water landings. Okay, yeah, he's quite the guy. It's like day three. <laughs> In other stories that I have found, this one I found very interesting. Israel's agriculture minister, his name is Yuri Ariel, has a plan for the country's feral cat problem. Oh, really? Mass deportation. Oh, boy. Israel's going to deport feral cats where? Let's get into this. Ariel, who is a member of the far-right Jewish Home Party, drew ridicule from opposition uh, politicians after his proposal to transfer dogs and cats of a single gender oh boy. to a foreign country that is willing to accept them. It was leaked by the Israeli uh, media at the time. Uh, Man. So I don't know. That's scary because don't some countries eat, eat these animals? Some do. So you can't transfer them there. This no. Is, you'd this hope is not. a scary proposition. <laughs> They're looking to deport dogs and cats. <laughs> oh, jeez. Now, the far-right party... Mm-hmm. So he's the he's the far right. This is the far left party yeah. on Facebook suggested that it's time to look for a foreign country that would agree to absorb Ariel. So the guy that came up with this idea, the left wing party is like, let's ship this guy out of the country. But not without your shots and spays or neuters. Yeah. The ministry's current efforts to contain uh, the stray animal population involves spaying and neutering a method <laughs> that Ariel opposes on the grounds that it violates Jewish law. So he is far right. The ministry said in a statement that his proposal has been considered and rejected. Wow. You know, thank heavens, our politics, that didn't come up in the debate once. What should we do with our feral population of cats and animals? We have a bigger country. Yeah. That's probably handled more on a local level than a national level. Well, and besides, you know the way you take care of them is you just drop them off on the highway somewhere. (laughs) Not that, not that we are, not that we no, support that. Absolutely not. But that's what people do. I just found that. Holy cow! So, is there a point as a politician? Do you think where the answer to whatever the problem is is mass deportation? Well, it depends who you're asking. Well, true. Because certain candidates right now are all about mass <laughs> deportation, but I'd say no. Uh, the cat, I mean, it seems like they're your cats and animal dogs. You need to deal with your cats and dogs. So it's an owner yeah. situation yeah, rather than the to. government. And I don't think you can, I mean, imagine what could happen to all of these animals trying to cross the line. They got to go through security checks, border agencies. <laughs> would there have to be a, a special division <laughs> of the TSA sure. for dogs and cats? Yeah. It would be the dog catcher. <laughs> The dog catcher would have to be there. You'd have to frisk each one of these dogs, x-ray them. You'd have to do tests. you got to see if they have TB, all these other dog problems. I mean, it's a mess. Yeah, I'm glad that they they just need to deport him. So is this a microcosm of the United States immigration yes. debate? It probably is. Except people are cleaner, aren't they, than animals? Or are animals cleaner than, I don't know. I'm not sure. It's just there is a parallel, but we don't want to disparage any. This is true. Candidate.
But at one point, I mean, at this point, it says the ministry said in a statement that the proposal has been considered and rejected. Yeah, good. So they're not going to be chipping out cats and dogs here. No. Can we have that here? No. In this country where dealing with immigration that someone just says, okay, it's rejected. Um, to make well, yeah. it a smoother process than having to go through 1,500 votes and all these No, different... it would have to be voted on, right? <sighs> it's got to be voted on. That's ridiculous. But we could – I'm not against saying that if the idea doesn't pass, then whoever proposed it, we deport Okay. I'm not against that. Because that's what they're saying, though, because yeah. his idea was bad, so his penalty for a bad idea right. is you're gone. Yeah, but see, that that may not matter. So if this candidate or these candidates that say this don't don't get elected, then they lost – their ideas didn't hold water, right? So, yeah, we won't be deporting any of them. <laughs> Wouldn't that make the presidential election more interesting? I think if it was like a fight match to the death, yeah. fascinating. Not, not to the death, just – Well, to the deportation. To the deportation. Yeah, fighting to the deport. So, it, so if you get voted off the island, or yeah, not necessarily the see, and we got different levels of this. You got the survivor type thing where mm-hmm. you get voted off the island, you're right. just off, or big what's that? Big brother, that house they're in, they just yeah. k- get kicked out of the house. Let's just put them all in a house. But I mean, the extreme would be Hunger Games. Yeah, no, that's or the way too you bad leave way. the game, you die. That's, that's the extreme. Yeah, we're not going to do that. Yeah, it'd be better to put them in a house with each other. Okay, and then just see like poor Carly, right? <laughs> she's the she's the only female in the house, right? And that always gets weird. Yeah, but they'd find they'd form alliances. They would, and then in the end, the winning alliance, you get down to the final two. That's who we put up to nominate. And it would happen a lot faster than yeah. we're dealing with now. And I think the Dems could do a house too, just with the three of them. Right? Kind of like this old house. <laughs> that would, I think that would be a much more entertaining approach <laughs> a great idea. to the election process. It's not a bad idea. Just vote people out of a house, watch so, the alliances build, and then all of a sudden you could build your cabinet while you're there? So you thought this through. You've really thought this through. <laughs> I thought, thought we were was... just telling a story about a cat and a dog. I was, but I, I, it kind of turned into a bigger thing because it's kind of <laughs> paralleling a lot of things that are going on. I think it's great. It's great news. So let's um, – we'll come back to that. We'll make sure we come back to this. We'll have to nominate. We'll have some plan. We'll put it out there, and then you can all vote on it. Um, but until that, let's just get to our next guest. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be inviting in Chesley Sully Sullenberger and uh, a recording that we did of him, one of my favorite interviews ever – Uh, to hear about just his view of the airline industries today, security, safety, how safe is it really, Um, and just you're going to hear from a true American hero. So stick with us. We'll be right back with Sully Sullenberger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, we wanted to uh, do a little blast from the past. And so on the shows this week, we are going to be re-airing some of our classic interviews, interviews that you may not get to hear as often, but uh, they're still just as uh, valuable and important to us today. Um, And there was an interview I did back on April 28th of this year with uh, a man named Chesley B. Sully Sullenberger. You may know him better as Sully Sullenberger, who, by the way, was the captain during what has now become the miracle on the Hudson. 
Do you remember the United Airways flight that was going down with um, a bunch of passengers on board after a bird strike, and uh, the plane had to land in the Hudson River? Well, we did a wonderful interview with the pilot of that incredible flight, and especially just with the Russian air accident that happened over Egypt, where about 220 people uh, recently just died. You know, safe air traffic um, concerns are always around, and we wanted to bring back this great interview with Chesley Sully Solenberger. Stick with us. Let's listen to that interview now. Uh, how long did you serve as a captain, and how long were you flying? Oh, gosh. Last month marked the 48th anniversary of my first flying lesson. Holy cow. Um, I was an airline pilot for just over 30 years, a captain for 22 of those, uh, a fighter pilot in the Air Force before that. So you know, these are things I've worked on and cared about my whole professional life. Do you, I mean, that's so amazing. How many, air, how many hours uh, of airtime do you have? We hear about that all the time in these reports recently. Just over 20,000. Jeez, Louise, 20,000 hours. And the neat thing about your industry is you actually count that. The rest of us don't count how many hours we've done something. Yeah, well, that's how we get paid. Yeah. That's, that's the metric that uh, the industry decided, you know, 80 or 90 years ago to yeah. keep track of, to, to, you know, to log one's experience. Because, you know, as you can imagine, this is one of those professions where having seen a variety of different challenging situations over the years helps to kind of build your, your fundamental knowledge, your your skill, and your judgment yeah. that, that helps you to survive. And that's literally what kept people alive in the early days of the, of the profession was if you paid attention, you learned your lessons well and didn't forget them, then you lived long enough to get some experience. Oh, it's so true, really. You had to run by your abilities. It was all about you, wasn't it? Anyway, now it's about the team. Yeah. The team and, I guess, the technology. And talk about what goes through your head. I mean, as somebody 20,000 hours under your belt, what goes through your head when you see the catastrophe, really, of German air? Oh, the German wings crash. German wings. shocking at so many different levels. Uh, What apparently this one particular person did is anathema to what every professional pilot lives and believes and holds dear. Mm. Does it, I mean, that in a way breaks every code, everything that you've probably ever seen in your years. Yeah, and that's, fortunately, it's such an extraordinarily rare occurrence, um, but it's, that's what's so uniquely unsettling and shocking about this is it's such a complete violation of trust. And really, that's essentially what helps people get on an airplane is that one trusts that they'll be taken care of, that there'll be professionals who will be dedicated and, and exercise great care on every flight. Mm. Do you um, do you sense and, and clarify for us, is, is the industry safe? Is it is it safe? Is it as safe as it's ever been? Is it more safe? Where are we when it comes to safety? Air travel is safer than it's ever been. It has become ultra safe. Now, in the last year, we have had an increase in fatalities. It's been terrible. We've had a number of terrible catastrophes in the last year. But still, the accident rate is as low as it's ever been. Hmm. But I think we're getting some wake-up calls in the international aviation industry. Uh, We need to take a closer look at how we screen pilots and how we uh, handle 
uh, mental illnesses. We need to take a closer look at what the relationship is between the human component and the technological component in our cockpits. We need to have a system that takes into account human abilities and limitations and the limitations of technology so we use the best of both. When you've sat in the pilot seat with a co-pilot, how much, uh, what is the relationship like between those two people? It's a, a team of near equals. You know, the captain ultimately is the decision maker, but the first officer now, and hasn't been for 80 years, uh, an apprentice, um, the, the first officer is someone who's going to be a captain, and they work very closely together to to monitor not only the performance of the airplane and all its component systems, but of each other, and they they help each other, assist each other, back each other up. We have a lot of procedural safeguards in place. We have hardwired them for the best and most effective communication and decision-making, workload management. So we really have learned how to take you know, individual strangers at a large airline who may never have met before, and that was the case for me and my first officer that week on our flight. We met three days before this challenge of a lifetime, but yeah. we, we were so well-trained at such a high standard and knew our roles and responsibilities so well that we could face this ultimate challenge together, having only met a few days before. We're, we are talking with uh, Captain Chesley Soli Solenberger, the third, by the way, and you remember he he's, you know... Again, you probably hate the idea of being called a hero. You were doing your job, but uh, you were able to um, save 155 lives by setting your airplane down in the Hudson. And this idea, it's interesting that when you were able to do that, you had really only known your co-pilot three days. But your your history and your just your skills and and just the, the professionalism is what was able to kind of make a quick team. Yeah, that and the things that, that we individually had done 30 or years before, yeah. 30 or 40 years before, and our industry had done to to make this uh, possible. In other words, we didn't have to completely reinvent the wheel that day. We just had to put the last few spokes in place because we had built such a firm foundation of teams trained in the consistent use of best practices um, that we were able to innovate. What's interesting about this is that in our flight simulators, at least the ones I'm familiar with, the ones that we've used, it's not possible to practice a water landing. The data huh. do not exist. They aren't programmed for it. Yeah. Believe it or not, the only training we'd ever gotten for a water landing was a theoretical classroom discussion. So as it turned out, as the investigators found, after the bird strike and the thrust loss right after takeoff, we had only 208 seconds until we were going to reach the surface of the Earth. We had to decide uh. where that was going to be and how to do it um, and get right something for the first time that we'd never done before. Do you, do you think, I mean, I'm sure they've all learned from that. That's one of the things I love about your industry is it seems like, you know, when a catastrophe happens or a near catastrophe happens, learning is is the next priority. And almost everything we've learned throughout the history of aviation has been... Uh, lessons learned from sometimes really bad accidents. And, you know, it's been at the cost of lives that we've learned these important lessons, literally bought with blood that we dare not forget and have to relearn. Mm. We do have a wonderful formal lessons learned process in aviation, particularly in the United States, where the National Transportation Safety Board investigates transportation accidents, and they find out what caused it. And most important, they make recommendations for how to improve safety going forward to prevent something similar from happening again. The downside in our system is that while the NTSB investigates and makes recommendations, 
They cannot mandate that they be adopted. Mm. It's up to our nation's aviation regulatory authority, the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, to choose to mandate certain things and to make the airlines comply. And as with most incidents and accidents, in our case, the NTSB made several dozen recommendations for improvement in safety, and yet only two, to my knowledge, have been implemented oh, and really? by the FAA and the airlines, which is very disturbing to me and to the NTSB board members with whom I've spoken. Some of them are, are very obvious and common sense things, like, for example, instead of what you find on most domestic flights now, uh, where you have only a seat cushion for flotation, one of the recommendations is that there should be a life vest for every passenger on every airplane, right. not just the ones that are scheduled to fly long distances over water. That has not been adopted as yet by the industry. So it's a great mm-hmm. frustration, and we need to be doing a lot better job than we are. There's some things that we're just not doing a good enough job about in spite of how safe we've made aviation. Well, and it seems like um, some of the innovations after 9-11 that were picked up by the American um or the FAA, I guess, and the NTSB, it seems like those weren't necessarily in play in the German wings flight. No, as it turns out, and I, I didn't realize this until just recently, it was primarily the U.S. carriers that had the two-person-in-the-cockpit requirement yeah. and not not international carriers, and most of them have begun to follow suit more rapidly after the German rings crash. Do you sense that that would make a difference? Um, it seems like... Um, you know, I guess you'd put a flight attendant or somebody else in the cockpit if the pilot needed to leave. Is is that something you believe needs to stay and maybe needs to be, you know, adopted worldwide? Yes. And it it's a simple, easy-to-do intervention uh, that might have helped in this case. It certainly has important logistical advantages. For example, you know, when when one pilot leaves the cockpit to attend to physiological needs to go to the laboratory, for example, um, then the other pilot is in the seat. We're required, for obvious reasons, when you're the single pilot remaining in the cockpit, to be seated at your station in your seat with your seat belt fastened. So if there's sudden turbulence, you're not going to be displaced from it mm. and unable to control the airplane. You have to put your oxygen mask on uh, if we're above a certain altitude to make sure if there's a sudden depressurization of the airplane that you're not, you know, rendered incapacitated. Um, And so you're immobile. You're not able to get up from your seat to look through the peephole in the cockpit door to see who's trying to re-enter. You're not able to open the door and there's an electronic device to use. So for a variety of really practical reasons, it's important to have a second person in the cockpit to assist the pilot who's flying the airplane seated in his seat or her seat. Um, And it, it, it might have helped in the German spring. German that's, spring and that's, I guess that's it. You really never can tell. Um, we're talking again with uh, Captain Soli Solenberger, um, just just a heroic pilot, but also one that cares about safety, that, that understands it. We're trying to understand even more about the industry and, and some of the changes that we can we could be making. When we come back, we're going to, to get a little more in-depth. I want to find out about what are some of his recommendations about you know, uh, mental health screening. And also I want to find out there's been some other reports about technology potentially replacing a pilot. I'd love to hear his ideas on that. I know he's written an article about that. More with uh, Soli Solenberger, also the author of Making a Difference, Stories of Vision and Courage. You can find it uh, anywhere books are sold. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, one of the goals on the show is to let you understand, learn real leadership. And, uh, man, have we got a great example of that. Captain Chesley Soli Sullenberger III is joining us. You know him as the guy, the, the pilot that was in charge of that U.S. Airways flight 1549 that landed on the Hudson River after it struck a, a bird and, um, boy, lost an engine, went down, if you remember, and a water landing, uh, something you just don't see ever, really. Um, and he's joining us today as, as you know, an expert in this field, somebody that cares about it, that spent more than 20,000 hours of flight time, friends, which is a lot of flying. Soli, thanks for being here. We really appreciate your time. Of course, Matt. Talk um, a little bit about the the mental health screening of pilots. Uh, how, how do you How do you think, what are some changes that might be able to be implemented? What would you like to see? What would be, you know, deep enough, but not so deep that, you know, we're going to make pilots, you know, not want to do their job? Well, you know, one of the great advantages that we've had in the United States for most of the time since the Second World War is that we've had primarily former military pilots become airline pilots. Right. Uh, And that's beginning to change. Uh, There are fewer military pilots now it used to be that about 75% of the pilots newly hired by the airlines were military trained, and now just about the reverse is the case. Um, so it's really important that uh, if we are not having as many people go through the really uh, rigorous, disciplined, um, demanding military uh, flight track where they've been looked at and scrutinized and given all kinds of tests before they even become military pilots that yet to, and then to be scrutinized again during the screening process to be hired by an airline that we have an equivalent method in the civilian world yeah where there's a, you know enough screening enough people have looked at and flown with this particular pilot and this pilot has had a number of different jobs have been screened by several employers before they apply for the airline so that you know he he or she has had to prove themselves you know competent reliable yeah. and worthy of trust before they get to that point but in the end and i've talked to a, a variety of mental health uh, professionals including dr stuart eisendrath at uh, ucsf and uh, self-reporting is still the essential element that in spite of how much screening you do, and, and there are some limitations to that, yeah. how effective it can be. It's really up to self-reporting in many ways, and not just in terms of reporting mental health issues, but in terms of the 40-plus year history we have in all kinds of safety reporting systems in aviation, reporting safety deficiencies, reporting errors, maintenance problems, and other things. It's it's only from self-reporting that we can get certain critical safety information and we just can't get in any other way. So we have to make sure that we have a just and not a punitive culture mm-hmm. in organizations or else you just drive the problems underground where they can never be solved. Yeah, you want to be able to, if you have to report something, you know, that you, you know, you're having stress because of a divorce, you need, to, you need some time off. It'd be nice to know that you're not going to pay for it later. Right, and... Uh, you know, from what I've learned in studying this, and I've thought a lot about this over the years, um, you know, mood disorders are fairly common mm-hmm. in the general population. Um, and since the pilot population is an important subset of that, uh, and even though we are, you know, very disciplined and very dedicated, perhaps more than average, it still affects individuals that way also. 
It's also important to, to understand, and this is a, a real dose of realism that we all have to have, is that even if we had the most efficacious screening program at the outset of one's career, there's no guarantee that somewhere subsequent to that they might experience some uh, mood disorder. So it's it's really important that that uh, we have effective processes in place. One of the things that we have done for decades in the airlines is through the pilot unions, we've had effective professional standards committees, peers who are trained in helping to address issues like this. Huh. I, and I think that's I think that's important because you having a bunch of pilots be a part of that seems to make a big difference so that it's pilot friendly enough. We, we've already heard a lot of stories about, you know, the pilot getting on the plane and flying under the influence or whatever. And some of that is also just probably coping mechanisms of trying to deal with other stresses and other life issues. So and, and that's a good example, because back in the 60s, um, the, the pilot unions, the airline managements and the FAA all had an effective partnership. And they began this partnership um, in the HIMSS program, the Human Intervention Motions, um, I'm sorry, Human Intervention Motivation Study, uh, and for substance abuse to identify people, get them off the line, get them the help they need, and if and when they were certified to come back to work. Something similar, I think, this same sort of partnership is essential also in terms of mental health. Hmm. Have you ever been in an airplane, solely where you sat next to somebody that you really questioned their competency or no. their or their or just their, you know, their mental health? No, I have not. Uh, and, and I think that's an indication. That's a big of, indicator of of how we do a great job of making sure that the right people do this job and that the wrong people don't. And you know, let me tell you, that's a great point that you bring up. And one I intended to get to is what a close working environment the cockpit is. Yeah. You're essentially, especially since September 11, 2001, with the security requirements. Yeah. And, You're and locked the, in, aren't the, you? The armoring of the doors. You're locked in this little closet with your coworker for 12, 14, <laughs> and, and sometimes 16 hours a day, mm. uh, where you're literally rubbing elbows, where no interaction goes unnoticed, um, and you have to work closely together, and you begin to learn all about them. And, and not that you can discover everything right. about them, but you, you really do notice a lot. And I think it would be really it would take an exceptional effort for someone to hide over many days together like that, many months together yeah. flying like that, uh, something that was really going terribly wrong. Does it, does, is there already an existing um, way for you to report something strange that you're seeing that, that could be kind of an anonymous report? Yes, again, through the Professional Standards Committee that the Pilots Association okay. have. Um, and if that isn't sufficient, you can go to the official route through the Chief Pilot Airline Management. And if that doesn't work, you or the airline can go to the FAA and they can bring someone in to have them uh, have to demonstrate mm -hmm. in the flight simulator their competence, their skill, their knowledge, their judgment, their ability to, to focus and cope with the demands of the job. What do you... And that's something that we do on a regular basis anyway. Okay, yeah. You, you, we do it every uh, six or nine months, depending on the airline, uh, to demonstrate our, our knowledge, our judgment, our, our competence in many ways. Um, and this other avenue is an additional way that on certain special occasions you can bring someone in who, who is having difficulty. Yeah. It, um, it, it's, it's such an interesting thing because most people in their occupations aren't as um, – nobody pays attention to them like you guys. Well, I mean, there, there's no other professional group that is as scrutinized right. currently as we are. 
None, certainly not the medical profession. And we're subject to random drug and alcohol testing. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, it, but I'm not saying, I'm not defending the status quo. I'm just no. saying that's, that's right. what we're already doing. It statistically has worked very well, but there may still be things that we need to do better, and sure. we need to find out what they are. Well, and then also it just seems so interesting because then, you know, then a catastrophe, some disaster, something happens, and then everybody jumps on almost out of fear. And, uh, you know, I, one thing I really wanted to ask you is the during the, the whole – I think it was the day after they found out that this, this pilot may have intentionally, you know, kept the other pilot the, – the pilot out. The co-pilot kept him out and then he, he changed the coordinates or whatever and flew into the mountain. Um, the, the news went crazy and, and all of the, the news uh, sources started talking and, and in a way there was a big debate about what they were reporting. Were, were they giving away too much – too many secrets, too much information – that might tip the hand of security down the road. What was going through your head as you saw that debate going on? Were, were, was too much of the curtain being lifted, or you yes. think we're fine? No, I, I agree that too much of the curtain was lifted, and that happens repeatedly, particularly with the 24-hour um, outlets who have to fill a lot of airtime. Right. Um, and I, I, that's something I have never done. I, I have never mentioned the perpetrator's name. Yeah. Um, if we should mention a name, it should be the captain's name who would try heroically oh. to regain access to the cockpit. Um, I have never talked about the specifics of what we do and how we do it in terms of a security uh, other than what's already been made public. And I, I think it's a mistake to, to go too far in that way. Mm-hmm. I think there are ways to accurately inform the public so that they can make important uh, informed choices about public policy, but we need to keep more of our security um, under wraps. But, it, but I think much of what has been uh, said on the air, unfortunately, was already on the Internet. And some of it was um, in training videos uh, that were you know, made by, for example, one of the airframe manufacturers. Yeah. So there's already a lot of stuff out there. But I, there, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we go too far and too much detail about it. I mean, really. I mean, we, I mean, they were like showing where the switches are to unlock certain doors and I mean, uh, it, it, and it's all for a news cycle, and I and I think sometimes we're 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 not playing the long game very well. And I think, in fairness to those outlets that have done that, one would still have to know the proper code, okay, to use yeah. to do that. But but uh, why why even go in that much detail? Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Um, just I, uh, I I'm gonna I want to I've got so many questions for you, Soli. Here's another one. Just your quick gut. Uh, idea. Where did Malaysian Air go? We don't know. We are not going to know until we find the airplane. Uh, it's it's one of those occasions where very little is known. Mm-hmm. There are so few facts. Um, what's interesting about this is that from such sparse pieces of information, they have narrowed it down to this huge area that they're searching right yeah. now. And that's from those seven, what they call handshakes, these attempted contacts between the satellite communication system and the aircraft systems. And they used data that had never been used this way before to try to measure the, the angle of the antenna that was receiving the satellite communications from the aircraft uh, and then using Doppler techniques, see if it was moving away from the satellite or toward the satellite. And from that extrapolation, then they've been able to, to say it's probably in the uh, area of the Indian Ocean, just uh, southwest of Western Australia. Mm. 
but they're searching it. I just saw a news report yesterday that says the Australian government and others are still partnering to continue this search. They're going to keep going, and they say, until they find the aircraft. Mm. And it's important that we, we do that. You know, aviation, uh, in this formal lessons learned process that we have to make aviation continually safer, the international community is just not tolerate this level of ambiguity willingly. Right. They're going to keep on going until they find the aircraft, and hopefully they'll find out not only what happened and how it happened, um, but why it happened. I'm not sure we'll ever know the exact motivation or exactly who did what, but we should be able to find out some of the things that were done. That's good. That's comforting, at least, isn't it? Um, you know, with last month's tragic uh, or the, the accident um, in April or May, uh, March, I guess it was, in the French Alps, a lot of people are saying, you know, these you know, pilots intentionally bringing down planes, maybe we need to create a system where it's totally advanced automation, no more pilots. I know you've written on this. Um, what, what's your take? Yeah, I just wrote a piece on LinkedIn about this a yeah. few days ago. Um, and I've been, again, I've been thinking about these important issues for over 20, 30 years. Um, I took a, a course at USC taught by the late uh, University of Miami professor, Dr. Earl Weiner, a real pioneer in automation studies from the 80s on. And um, let, me, let me just put it very bluntly. Technology, at least for the foreseeable future, cannot replace pilots. Uh, one of the limitations of, of technology in any domain, and certainly in aviation, is that technology can only do what has been foreseen and for which it has been programmed. It's up to the human element to be able to yeah. adapt and to innovate to, like in our case, do something we've never done, done before, never trained for, right. get it right the first time in a very short time frame. Um, I, I don't think the technology exists to, to replicate what we were able to, my crew and I and others, to achieve that day. Um, could technology have helped in the German Wings case? Perhaps, but it probably couldn't happen for the next unanticipated case that it hadn't been programmed right. for. So it's really important that we have the right balance of technology in our cockpits and we assign the right roles to the human element and to the technology so that we build on the, on the strengths of both and we, we avoid the weaknesses of each. You know, humans, on the other hand, are poor monitors. We're not good at watching technology do most of the work for hours on land, right. waiting for the one time in a thousand when it, when it doesn't do what we want or expect. So you actually human. We we really should probably reverse the roles that we are heading toward in in cockpits and make humans more directly engaged, aware, and involved in the process, doing more of it, and having the technology, you know, give us help yeah. with decision aids and and uh, give us Cues and, yeah. to avoid exceedances. That would be, you know, I think from my experience, a much better use. Uh, both the human and the technological components. Well, and how many times has a pilot, you know, uh, averted an issue that no one has ever heard of just by simply being there, solving it, fixing it, anticipating it, and, and, you know, those never turned into more anomalies that we're now dealing with. And the other important point is, too, that we've really learned how to to take a a team of of pilots, a, a team of experts, and create an expert team. We've and that's something I used to do at the airline is to teach these skills, the team building, the leadership, the workload management, the error trapping, uh, backing each other up just so that you can collaborate wordlessly when the workload is so high you don't have time to have a mm-hmm. conversation about it. That's what Jeff and I did on yeah. the flight to the river. Um, so uh, 
these human skills are critically important too. managing not only the technology, but monitoring each other. And, and that's something you just can't replicate currently with technology. Yeah, and it seems like technology could be better served to monitor the airplane, create even a more consistent communication, more information transfer. So like a Malaysian air, we could have had a lot more data if we had, you know, if we had stronger technology that way. And there are efforts afoot in the international community to improve reporting over remote areas, especially oceanic areas where there's no ground station and you have to use satellite technology to receive information from aircraft. Hmm. You know, Sully, this will be the last question, I promise. I'll let you go. And then, but you've written a book, you've written two, Making a Difference, Stories of Vision and Courage, and your other book, Highest Duty, My Search for What Really Matters. I'd love to hear, as as somebody who has sat in the seat in the moment of just utter chaos and managed your way through it, landing on the Hudson with 150-50 souls in your, in your airplane, um, saved. I think one of the things that passengers want and need when they board an airplane uh, is to know that there's someone along with them. There's someone who is as dedicated to saving every life as they possibly can, someone who shares their values, someone who's never going to give up, who's always going to try to find one more thing that they could possibly do to be, become more successful, even if it's by a fraction. That's what we did that day over the river. We we only hear about it when it goes bad, but uh, you guys are there day in, day out, making it happen. Uh, Captain uh, Chesley Sully Sullenberger, we so appreciate you and your great work. And everybody, go out, read those books, Making a Difference, The Stories of Vision and Courage, and also Highest Duty, My Search for What Really Matters. We so appreciate you, Captain. Have a good one, and uh, take care of yourself. Keep flying. Ah, it's good to have leaders, isn't it? People we can follow, people we can learn from. Uh, in every industry, they exist. Who are your leaders? Who are the people you'd be willing to follow? Are you one of those leaders? That's the goal of this show is to give you the tools to become the kind of leader you need to be, you want to be, uh, like Sully Sullenberger. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, you know, we need a guy like Sully Sullenberger to head to Baltimore and just fly this this chaos that's going on in Baltimore right now. How about that answer about um, has he ever sat next to a co-pilot that he felt unsafe with? And he's like, nope, not once. Which tells us that whole... German Wings airline crash is such an anomaly and you can't you can't prepare for every anomaly and so maybe some of the lessons of that uh, could also be used in Baltimore there's no way to fully know what's going to happen in a powder keg like Baltimore you can't know <sighs> so and you know what we still don't know where Malaysia air is so, isn't it crazy uh, he also – I love that comment about, you know, we don't fly um, and practice water landings. <laughs> I guess I guess that's a failure except for him. Major, major success. And in fact, if you haven't done it, I would go get online. Um, 
go to YouTube and look up uh, Soli Solenberger Hudson River landing thing because they put together um, an animation of the airplane flying and kind of how it took off from the airport and and the route it took. And then they had they put over the the top of it the voice of Sully and the air traffic controller, and the air traffic controller is basically saying, uh, "Okay, why don't you divert?" He says, "We've we we hit some birds and our engines and lost power in our engines. We need to we need to return." And then the 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 traffic controller is like, "Okay, why don't you uh, divert to LaGuardia?" And he's like, uh, "That won't be possible." And he's like, okay, then why don't you – how about Kennedy, Kennedy Air? Why don't you divert to Kennedy, JFK? And he's like, uh, yeah, that's not happening. We're going to – you know, then, he, then his last words were, you'll, you'll, you're going to find us in the Hudson. Ugh. Can you imagine knowing you're the pilot with all these people and you're going down in the Hudson? We're, you're going to find us in the Hudson. And then the amazing video. Do you remember the video where they come out and you see an airplane floating in the Hudson River? Like how cool is that? As a pilot, how good would you feel when your last person gets picked up in the Hudson and you can now, you know, deboard, deplane? What, deplane. Did, did he fly after that? Yeah. He continued flying? Because you, you yeah. could have just kind of done the whole mic drop thing. Yeah, right there. Bam, Look what I just slam did. your mic down. <laughs> you can't top this. See ya. Like, uh, would that not be the best feeling in the world, stepping off of the wet wings of your airplane as it's floating, knowing everybody's off, everybody's good? <sighs> Sully Sullenberger. That is just – that is machismo. That is the coolest, most macho thing in the world. And honestly, he's just the greatest guy and such a professional. Like I try to make him laugh here and there and he just he's not going to have it. He's not going to have a laughter. He is. He's good. Um, but right there tells us that's the kind of leadership we need. We need somebody that will just stare down the flipping Hudson River. And who thought to put it in the Hudson except where else are you going to land it? Yeah, that might have been just by circumstance. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it. We're going down. It happened to be over water. <laughs> but – and I've talked to another pilot about it. He says that normally you're just going to cartwheel through that thing and just shred your plane. And he just nailed it. Huh. Yeah, what have you done today? Well, yeah, I made toast. <laughs> Drove. Yeah, I landed a plane in the Hudson. Saved 150 lives. Now he's out speaking, teaching corporate executives. He's on the news. He's on the news. Yeah, he's a correspondent he's for a CBS correspondent, News, helping him work through all the all the other aviation problems and accidents. Anyway, leadership, folks. That's one of the goals of the show is to show some great leaders and Sully Sullenberger, one of the top. We're going to take a break, my friends. Again, come back, give you more tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your relationship coach, your guide on the side, doing what we can on this program to help you live longer and love stronger. My friends, have we got a great show for you. To, for you. Coming up in just a minute, Sir uh, Kerry Cooper will be joining us. Yes, 
somebody that has been knighted. Sir Kerry Cooper will be joining us, and he's going to be talking about work emails that actually make you, uh, let's just say, stupid. According to our guest, we'll be talking about uh, the impact that your email may have on some of the results you're getting. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. But before we uh, we dive too deeply into our work emails, let's uh, let's check in with Terry. Find out what's going on around the world. Terry, any news? Any any important stories? We just got to talk about. There's all kinds of important stories. Have you heard of? Uh, have you ever had a desire to go to space? No. You don't want to be an astronaut. Never, never as a kid. Uh, yeah, a little bit as a kid, but then you know, you grow out of that. Yeah, I grew out of it. Like you want to be a firefighter yeah. or a police officer. You know why? I don't like Tang. Okay, I think they've moved beyond that. Oh, oh, have they? Yeah, they might have something more, more developed than Tang. Okay, though yeah. Tang is pretty good. I mean, it is. It's just so sugary. It's a high quality breakfast drink. <laughs> That's right. If you've ever had a test at the hospital where they make you drink that. The dye. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it reminds me of Tang. Really? I've actually never had that, but I've seen my wife drink it. Ugh. Bleh. Turns everything blue? Yeah. No, it actually turns it all. I don't know what it turns it. But I mean, I guess on the-, the yeah. uh, on the scan. The scanner all comes yeah, out blue. Yeah, probably does, yeah. Iridium Ugh. or something. Yeah. Tang, that's why you got to watch out for it. Oh, New ideas about Tang. So wh- why? So why do you ask? We have an astronaut from our country named Scott Kelly. Yeah. Yes. He is in the International Space Station. He is he is living on that the space station for he's been there for 219 or so days right as the writing of the the information I have here um, he, he it's pa- it's part of his year long mission he's going to spend one year in space wow the whole point is we're preparing at some point to go to Mars yeah but we don't know what weightlessness and zero gravity does to the human body over a prolonged period of time so you put him up there. He floats around. He's on TV. I mean, he's you can watch him. I think on the NASA channel. Yeah, on your your. Is he just and he's just he's just hanging out up there. He he gets on there and talks. He did some Halloween type things, and he sent some videos to scare people. And I mean, pretty much everything that happens down here, he's up there commenting on, and and he's having this back and forth with you know ground control. I guess you call it. <laughs> so. I guess my question is, do you think he still feels isolated even though he has a lot of contact? Yeah, he does. Don't you think that would be weird? I mean, everyone's watching you. You can't do anything without, you know, 15 people knowing it. Right. At all hours of the day, someone's monitoring you. But there's probably a difference between that and being, like, connected to people, you know? Like, it's just, you can be in your house with your family and nobody... You still have some privacy. Even when he goes to the restroom, they're all like, uh, yeah, I'll, so where's Scott? Oh, Scott's going to the bathroom. I'll be right back. <laughs> uh, Scott, we need to know uh, how many ounces you evacuated from your body. Oh, boy. Okay, well, here we go. I mean, that it's like, so I, I think it that's got to impact his head. Is he married? Do we know? Um, I don't know much information about him personally. Because what a big, honestly, that is a seriously... Big contribution. He's going to be gone for one year. Imagine if you're married. Imagine your kids, you know, do they call every day and say, hey, dad? Because it's such a, that's such a sacrifice. Just Skype for breakfast, right? Yeah. And just think of that. I mean, even a Skype just isn't, when was the last time he got a hug? I mean, I guess other astronauts, when they come to the space station, they'll hug on him. I don't know. I think that would be so. Yeah, he's not lonely. completely alone up there. No. There's other people rotating through, but he's just going to stay. Have you seen Martian? 
Not yet. No, I haven't. Oh, you got to see Martian. Talk about that would be lonely right there. Um, but And then eventually you just end up talking to yourself. So it says that Kelly was born in New Jersey. He uh, went to West Orange. He's in that community. Yeah. If you know where that is. No. He went to, and there's his high school. He, he has an identical twin named Mark. Oh, my heavens. So that would be interesting is to study his identical twin versus him after he gets back. And I see. wonder if that's why they're doing the study. Maybe. He is divorced and has two daughters. He has yeah. a long-term relationship with... Uh, another woman, his sister-in-law, is Gabrielle Giffords, the former congresswoman from Arizona. I believe she was the one that was shot. Oh, that's right. I wonder if Mark is the other astronaut. That would be maybe the— that He's an astronaut, too. The husband. So I've, there you go. Interesting. So we've, we've, we've learned something more about Scott Kelly today. That so, is cool. Uh, the commander had such a good time uh, getting in the Halloween spirit from space, but now there's much a much bigger occasion to celebrate Monday— which was last week, marks 15 straight years of human presence aboard the space station. Wow. The 16-man crew of U.S., Russian, and Japanese astronauts will commemorate the anniversary with a special dinner. The, uh, the self and the Associated Press, since November 2nd of 2000, 220 astronauts from 17 countries have taken up home in the orbiting lab. Collectively, they've eaten more than 26,500 meals. Wow. Let's hope at least some of them looked more appealing, and then they had a picture of this cheeseburger thing that they eat. You've seen some yeah. of the astronaut yeah. food. But did, did, did they have any tang? I, I'm not sure. They don't really have a full coverage on the availability of <laughs> we tang. Need, it's not a space trip without tang. That's just what I know. And so, is he, so that's interesting because so when he comes back, let's say they find out that man can't stay in space for longer than a year. Yeah. That's going to blow a lot of minds. That's going to blow up pretty much every mission. So then the question is, do we have to stay in a pressurized suit the entire yeah. time to Mars? What is right. that? You know, there's just you have to try to figure out a new problem, a new hurdle to get by. And I guess radiation levels have got to be, mm-hmm. I guess, fairly normal. But it seems like they wouldn't be. I don't know. In the, and maybe maybe they have to fi- figure out artificial gravity. Hmm. In, in all the movies, you just rotate. You, and that's how you do it. You just spin the whatever vessel you're in. That's right. And then they don't address the whole issue. So right. they just so that, that's well, why it's it, spinning. We we have gravity. That's why they need more. <laughs> that's why they need more movies up there, so that we can show NASA how to do it right. I don't know because most of the movies that have to deal with being in space are disaster movies. That's like true. you may want not want to go to the space station and watch Gravity. <laughs> not the movie you need to see. Do you think they get a watch TV? Because you'd think after a year, he's got two daughters. He's got to stay up on all the pop culture, right? He's yeah. got to watch Martian. And do you watch Martian? I don't know. Because in the movie Martian, they intercept, I think. Don't ruin it. Okay. <laughs> it's just really good. You really need to look into it. It's a great movie. But it's a disaster movie. Um, on ish, some level, but it's it's a pretty cool. And then movie. it's a survival and yeah. power of the human yeah. spirit. Blah 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 blah. Save yeah, a soul. Just one guy. One all guy. these people. All this money to right. save one guy. Yeah, it's worth it. It's, it's. I've been told it's a great movie. Yeah, you got to see that. That's the movie. That's the movie you should be investing in. Not James Bond or Star Wars. I mean, you can invest in those, but you're like yeah. you're really investing. You're throwing your money way ahead of their release. So that's. That's like, well, that's how much I'm anticipating yeah. those. If I would have read the book, The Martian, maybe I would anticipate the movie, The Martian. Yeah, but you never saw the Bugs Bunny Martian? I saw that one. 
Marvin. That's what he, they didn't have him on the movie. He wasn't on the movie, uh-uh. but he was the original Martian. I know he wasn't there. No, nope, Hollywood failing us again. Yeah, letting us down <laughs> one movie at a time. Yeah, I don't know that I could do that, and I think I would probably go crazy. And then even when you're calling and talking to your girls back home, yeah, you're still being monitored. Yes. So it's like you're just it's it's got to be different. Well, I mean, it's neat for the kids. Yeah, my dad's in space. Yeah, I mean, sure, we're not going to see dad for a year, but well, you will. Every what does day. your dad do for a living? Oh, mine's just in a space station. Yeah, breaking records. Jimmy's dad's an accountant. His yeah. dad's a lawyer. My dad's in space. Jerry's a milkman. <laughs> I mean, it's like, how do you compete? There's no topping that. And, but bring your dad to work day. I mean, you, you can yeah. bring your dad to school. He just Skypes in. Well, that would take probably a lot of effort from NASA. Yeah. But they probably did it. I bet they do it. They're all about, Those you girls know, deserve it. education that way. So That's cool. Man, thank heaven someone's willing to do it. Uh, I have some people I'd love to send there. I'd like to send you to space. <laughs> yeah. We'll find somebody to send up there. Anyway, interesting um, interesting stuff. And it, it kind of brings back our next guest uh, down to earth, I guess. Work emails. Um, it, would you believe that they may be actually making you more stupid? They're slowing us down, folks. They They might be decreasing your efficiency. They might be taking you off focus. So we've uh, we've put together a really great interview that we're going to pick up in, in uh, after this break with Sir Kerry Cooper. It's an interview we did a few months ago, um, but it's a must-hear type of interview. So stick with us. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Sir Kerry Cooper about your work emails and how they're impacting your intellect. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we've got uh, a fun uh, little opportunity this week where we're going to be playing some of our favorite interviews from the past year. And today uh, is no exception. We'll be speaking with Dr. Charles Cordemanch, who um, originally we interviewed back in April 29th of this year. And uh, Dr. Cordemanch is is here to give us some fun facts about the obesity crisis, right? So here's a fun fact for you. From 1960 to 2012, the obesity rate in America has jumped from 13% to about 35% of the population. Most of that jump has happened since the 1980s. And why the sudden increase? Is it that our foods today are just so tasty or are they just so easily accessible? Is Walmart to blame, perchance? Or is it our genetics? Are we so stressed out as a society that food has become a coping mechanism? Well, economists have asked themselves... What is behind this abrupt rise in obesity? And uh, it's cost the nation nearly $190 billion annually, not to mention some 112,000 lives. So I uh, interviewed Dr. Charles Cordemanch, and he's the author of the study entitled, Can Changing Economic Factors Explain the Rise in Obesity? I started the interview with him, by the way, uh, asking him this question. Dr. Cordemanch, what are you finding out about obesity rates and the rise of obesity? Talk to us. What are you finding out about obesity rates and the and just economic conditions? Well, the uh, economists have been interested in the rise in obesity for about a decade now, and uh, really the you know so we know on the on the first you know the first level that 
must be something to do with eating and or exercise. Right. Um, the way economists are interested is that next level of well, why? What are the incentives? What are the specific you know environmental factors that have changed uh, over this time period that are inducing people to make different decisions about eating and exercise? So that's where where we come in. What we tried to do in this study is there's just been so much research about. You know, looking at a particular economic variable, maybe food prices, and, and how that relates to BMI. And then, you know, it's been all so scattered with all of these different studies. And what we tried to do is let's just take a big pile of all of these different factors that have been mentioned before and uh, you know, economic factors and just put them together. And, uh, you know, so we, we categorized them by um, – we ended up with 27 different factors, and they were in uh, – they were categorized as being either just general economic conditions like unemployment rates um, or being related to uh, related to labor markets, things like how long are we working. Um, they, and then the other categories were related to the time or money costs of eating, exercise, and then smoking, since there can be a smoking and weight connection. Um, and so we put all these together, and out of the 27 variables, there were really two well, first of all, it was it was really more the the category that kind of dominated was uh, those related to eating, and uh, as opposed to the other categories. And then within the category of eating, the two that really jumped out were the rise in Walmart super centers and uh, and warehouse clubs, hmm. and then the rise in restaurants, just increasing numbers of restaurants per capita. And between the two of those, they were coming in and explaining about. Um, about around 30% of the rise in obesity, and then, you know, more like closer to 50% of the rise in severe obesity, which is, you know, the which is body mass index uh, five points higher than the obesity cutoff. And the thing with severe obesity is that's really where the the serious health consequences start kicking in. Interesting. So that, that was a particularly striking result. So, so what's so? Let me get this straight. You're trying to figure out, I mean, obviously eating's a problem um, that mm. drives obesity, except you're also finding out that there were about 27 different economic indicators that were attributed also to the obesity kind of epidemic. And, and then you eventually narrowed it down to one of the bigger drivers is eating more, but you two of the biggest variables in eating more is we have more super centers – uh, Walmart supercenters and more restaurants going up, so we're we're actually selling more food, making it more accessible. That's right, and and it, uh, yeah. So even in, in other studies, I mean, if people just look at, you know, so it's either eating more or exercising less. People have looked at you know food diaries and time diaries and said, and it looks like it's more about eating more as opposed to exercising less. Mm. Um, and so then what we're doing is you know starting to come up with some explanations for well why the eating more. And, uh, yeah, and I think it, it, it's as simple as uh, money and time costs in this case. I mean, with, with, super center, with Walmart super centers and warehouse clubs, I mean, the biggest, the, the biggest change there is just they sell food at big discounts, and then they also um, – there's also evidence they kind of drive down competitors' prices when they come into a community. So, so that gives us more – not even ever yeah. shop at the Walmart but still pay lower prices. Yeah, and, my, and yeah, in money. restaurants, we're talking about food availability, just, you know, just uh, very easy access of and food that's not so good for you. It's, it's such an interesting uh, correlation because, I mean, n- none of us would sit there and think, oh, there's a Walmart going in. I'm probably going right. to gain five pounds this year. But, right, but, that's right. But interestingly, 
there is a correlation, right? You're getting your food from somewhere, and if you can get more for less, hmm, let's get more. Right, exactly, and and so I, you know, I think it's as you know, I would guess it's it's as simple as just yeah, the food the food is getting cheaper, <laughs> and uh, you know, or to whether it's an extent of. You know, in the past, people have been reluctant maybe to buy fresh produce at, at Walmart, although I think that's changed. But uh, and, and then with, of course, the warehouse clubs, there's this issue of buying in bulk, and maybe that could be, could be some of it, too. But, yeah, that, cheap, that, cheap and available food has, tends to have predictable consequences. Isn't that um, interesting? Also, and time. I know time was another component. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk about time because the economy – uh, kind of taking a hit the way they did. Not every type of worker took the same hit. Like blue collar workers, you know, are were are are uh, falling, not falling off the scale, but mm-hmm. they're dropping compared to white collar workers. And white collar workers might have more time in their days to go eat. Yes, exactly. So that's actually one of the other. So, so of the twenty seven factors, you know, the 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 restaurants and the Big box stores were kind of the the two leading ones, but then underneath that there were a handful that explained you know a few percent here and there. And one of those was uh, was the shift from uh, from you know blue collar to white collar employment. And so so that was one of those secondary factors. And you know what was interesting is we had another variable in there for that measured on the job exercise, and that did not do it. So it's the shift from blue to white collar employment, but not on the job, not because of on the job exercise. Hmm. So, what is it about the shift from blue to white collar employment, um, other than on the job exercise, that that could change eating or exercise habits? And so, what we think might be going on there is just the the routines in your day, and that you know, I'm at a white collar job, and it's easy enough to just kind of graze at your desk all day, yeah. or take a flexible, you know, to take a longer lunch, this sort of thing. Whereas maybe in blue collar, you don't have that kind of flexibility. So yeah. it could be snacking at work. Yeah, you you may not be doing like I mean, a, in a lot of white collar jobs, you got to go do lunch, you got to go talk, you got to take people yeah, to lunch. Yeah, you're you're con- I mean, so a lot of this mm-hmm. is around a meal and. It's so interesting. But when you think about it, this economically also shows that we're having some economic success because we're building more stores. You know, that'll increase the tax base. We're building more restaurants. So everyone's happy. And yet what we don't know is it's also impacting just availability and and other indicators. Absolutely. And and that's the broader, you know, the the big picture view that economists have have sort of taken to this over years is this idea that obesity is uh, almost a natural byproduct of technological advancement and just economic development. And you see that, you know, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Yeah. It's funny because people would be thinking, why are why do economists care about the BMI mm-hmm. and weight gain? Except mm-hmm. it's it really we, we live we're systemic. Right. So if the uh-huh. economy's down. I might be more depressed. I might be more inclined. I might have more time because I'm unemployed. I might. Uh-huh. And if there's more options and opportunities, um, it, it does. It, it ends up becoming an economic issue as well. That's right. And, and on top of that, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a major public finance issue. I mean, with uh, the, you know, the amount of money being spent on obesity-related illnesses and about half of the money spent on, you know, which is in the in the hundred, you know, well over a hundred billion dollars. I think the latest I've seen is about a hundred and ninety um, a, a year. And the 
and about half of that is being paid for by Medicare or Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, it's a major issue as far as uh, state and federal budgets. That's amazing. We're going to take a break. We're talking with Dr. Charles Cordemanch, and he's a Georgia State economist, and some research he's done, you know, is, is it's focusing on the fact that maybe some of these big box retailers and more restaurants that are going up, they also might be contributing to your weight gain. Uh, something you might want to pay attention to when we come back. We'll continue the discussion and uh, get into a, a little bit more, you know, what, what you know else we should be watching out for that might be impacting us as far as economic indicators that are, might be driving up uh, or at least increasing our waistline. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Would you ever believe that a new Costco or Walmart or Super Walmart or Sam's Club, could you believe that any of those you know, big box stores would be contributing to your waistline, the great growth on your waistline? That's, that just sounds horrible. Yeah, yeah. Is it doubling your ab size? Um well, guess what? According to some research by our uh, our next guest, or our current guest, Dr. Charles Cordemanch from Georgia State uh, University, he's an economist there, and he finds that obesity follows the growth of big box retailers and restaurants. And interestingly, in economic times, it's it's probably providing you affordable food and large amounts of it. And so uh, we're probably eating more. There is a correlation there. So again, Dr. Cordemanch, welcome back to the show. Thank you. This has got to be kind of a fun finding for you because it's it gets people talking. Yes, it is. It's funny to see. It's definitely uh, gotten a, gotten a good bit of media interest, and <laughs> and yeah, yeah. It's definitely everyone has a uh, you know with this topic, everyone has a uh, everyone has a view coming in, and then you're yeah. you're you know finding something that supports it or doesn't support it. And, so yeah, you're just blaming. The first time I read it, I thought, okay, because I've been to like a Costco and had some, mm-hmm. you know, lady with a hairnet pushing samples on me, and I'm thinking, is it just because <laughs> we're is it just because we're eating more samples for free? <laughs> but really, it's. I mean, these stores they do it affordably, and you go to a Costco and you're probably buying a lot more than you might normally buy, and a lot of stuff you might not normally need, and it's just more available. Good for or the you're economy. Larger packages yeah. of the stuff you would buy, and then it's around the house, so you're gonna you're gonna snack on it more. And, and it's good for the economy. It's interesting because mm-hmm. we kind of have always believed that anything that's good for the economy is good for us. Right. Not true. Well, I mean, and it can you know, and, and it's it's not to say it's not good for for us necessarily. It's just there are uh, there are often nothing is all good all the time. Right. right? It's uh, right. There, there can be consequences, and you know. We maybe are making more money, but uh, as a society, but we might be a few pounds heavier too. Yeah. Now, some of your um, skeptics are going to say, "Well, okay, if we're going to go there, then..." Um, and I don't know why I'm using that voice, but if we're going to go there, <laughs> I'm going to bet too. Uh, let's be real. There are also more, uh, um, you know, physical exercise gyms going up. There are more, you know, stuff like that. What's your why then? If we have more gyms, uh, more exercise 
you know, companies putting their, their sites out there, why are we not losing more weight? Well, we, uh, so that was one of the variables we put in the model as kind of a, you know, for exactly that reason was fitness center density too. And, uh, and gas prices was another one in there that, you know, is, is, uh, the price of gas goes up then, you know, then maybe that, uh, is inducing on the margin some people maybe take public transit or they're walking more or or maybe it's just squeezing disposable mm-hmm. income you know so yeah so there are definitely factors that go the other way um fitness centers the obvious one so we what we found is that fitness centers and gas prices both worked against the trend in some way in okay. a little bit of, of the way but but the idea is just simply that there's more forces or stronger forces going the other direction Doesn't yeah i mean there aren't some going going in the direction of against the trend yeah, and, and I mean, I think we love to think just, you know, people that are obese just, they just have no, you know, no discipline. But mm-hmm. the, I love this because it also shows how systemic our world is, that mm-hmm. one little thing, one little injury, one little issue, one unemployment moment mm-hmm. can, mm-hmm. can cause a lot of this obesity epidemic or right, influence it. Mm-hmm. Does uh, – did so – what are some other things that you kind of found interesting in the research of even if you just look at the other 27 variables, do, mm-hmm. does anything else stand out that that might be shocking to us as an everyday person that might be impacting a little bit our eating habits, our, our weight gain? Yeah, so some of the other sort of secondary factors that jumped out um, – Urban sprawl, so the shift away, you know, again, we're talking about over over a multi-decade period, and yeah. so there's just suburbanization and, you know, where you're just the, in general the more driving, heavy lifestyle. Um, so that that was something that, that showed up as explaining a few percent. Um, another one was, was food stamps, um, and this is, you know, just, it's, again, it's just the budget constraint as it, as it pertains to eating. Um you know, food stamps seem to be explaining a little bit of the rise in obesity. So more and more people are on food stamps. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and and so you know, again, it's the same thing with with WalMarts and, and cheap food. I mean, what you often have is this double-edged sword. About you know, on one hand, we really you know, food stamp for we, we don't want people going hungry, and so you have right. pro, these programs. And and even while I've got new research, uh, you know, very very new research talking about the other side of the coin with Walmart and with you know that that. Walmart super centers seem to be improving food security in low-income areas, hmm. right? So, uh, so reducing hunger, and so, so you often have this double-edged sword where, um, where on one hand these things are just cheaper and more available food is is uh, leading to obesity among some people, but among other people, it's maybe moving you from being hungry to not being hungry anymore, and. Yeah. and uh, so it's it's hard. It really it becomes hard when you start trying to go that next step and saying, "Well, is this good? Is this bad?" Or you know, it, it's really more complicated get, than that. Well, and maybe in your uh, work, it whether good or bad, it's it is what's happening. There's variables, right? And, and part of it, I think, is finally to be talking about the variable. And you know, we could, yeah, the food stamps, and we can get all mad at everybody, but the reality is too, it's it's providing a really important service and. Right. And with the availability of that money and the availability of stores so close, bada boom, bada bing, yeah, an extra five exactly. pounds. I mean, I didn't think about a driving commute. I commute a half hour morning and a half hour in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. 
And because uh, I'm not allowed to nap while I'm driving, I do partake <laughs> of food. And it's uh-huh. it, I didn't even think of just longer commutes might have us snacking more, eating more. Right, or, or even just to, you know, it's not exercise the hour a day that you, you could have been going to the gym. I mean, yeah. it, it can squeeze out physical activity, too. Yeah. Is, um, you know, when you think about your reach, research as an economist, where do you see you're going to keep taking this this uh, this study? Where, where do you what's next? Well, I think that the direction. It, so, so everything we've been talking about here is averages. It's it's, uh, you know, if a, a new Costco comes in, what's the effect on the average weight of the people in you know, the neighboring area? And, you know, what's obvious looking at the data is that it's not – the averages are just that, but that's masking that there's a lot of people, you know, when, when you look at the data more closely, there's a lot of people that don't gain any weight when the mm-hmm. Costco moves in. Sure. But then there, the, the weight gains are really concentrated among kind of the, this upper tail of the, uh, of the weight distribution where those people are gaining a lot of weight, right? And, and so, so it's trying to uh, – go that next step and say, okay, well, why is it that some people respond differently to these economic incentives mm-hmm. than others? And uh, whether that be, you know, you would talk to, you've, you've mentioned both self-control and genetics, and I think those are two yeah. possibilities. I mean, you know, and, and I've got one study that sort of uh, economists have a way of measuring, quote, self-control based on survey responses and things like this, and, you know, and it's not perfect, but uh, we do have some evidence now that it's the people with those, quote, self-control issues as, as, as measured through these survey responses that seem to be the most responsive, say, to food prices. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, I think you could say, I mean, genetics could be a factor, certainly, as well, where maybe two people change their eating habits the exact same when they start shopping at the new Costco, but, but one of them is genetically wired that that's really going to be consequential, and the other one might not do anything. Yeah. So, so, so it's a lot of this so is why, about why susceptibility. Are different responding differently. Yeah. yeah. There's just certain groups. So there are certain groups that are more susceptible than others. Um, it's such an interesting – and there's no correlation, I'm sure you haven't studied this, to the People of Walmart video or picture campaign <laughs> that's all over. <laughs> yeah, so that could be uh, I don't know. I'm either just... the causal effect of Walmart <laughs> yeah. or it could be selection of where you shop, right? Yeah, it's um, oh, that's just rude. But it, it's the it's so it's so interesting too that we I guess we don't we just understand it. That's what I love about talking to researchers mm-hmm. is because mm-hmm. it's just data, and you're just right. You're not as emotionally bound to the data, but the data is the data. Exactly. Um. What what are the rates of increase in obesity? Do you, do you know the exact? Uh, I guess it's an average increase uh, for some when a, when one of these big box chain stores whatever comes in. Let's see. So body so, body uh, mass index raise and obesity increase. Right. So I was quantifying it in terms of about a, a new store per hundred thousand residents okay. as, as being. So you can think of that, I guess, as. You know, think of a maybe your county has a hundred thousand residents, and and uh, and you know that then that would be one new store. If you're in a county with say a million people, it'd be ten new stores. Right, kind of a lot. But uh, 
you know, so into a smaller size area, one new store, you know, on average, you're, you might be talking about a three-pound weight gain across the population. <laughs> so it's not, you know, so the, again, that's the difference. Yeah. That's where the, the differential effects matter so much because right. everyone was just gaining three pounds. Maybe that's you know, not super consequential, but it's more that some people are gaining 10 pounds and 15 pounds, and then a lot of other people are gaining zero, zero. right? Yeah. So and, and it's interesting because the one that's gaining zero might be the one that actually created the policy. And, yes, and, the, exactly. and and moving everybody right. in, I and mean, what would be? I think what would be fascinating is if everyone could just gain the weight, then we'd be like, oh, do we really need a Costco and a Sam's Club <laughs> and a Walmart superstore? I mean, it, it, so so really, if I had those three move into my neighborhood, I might have a chance of gaining nine pounds. Yeah, I mean, this is scary. Yeah, um, or is yeah, it compounding yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, well you've got uh, you've got some fun research ahead of you. Thanks. Um, is there and, and again, we're all different, but I guess we could pay attention to it. Pay attention right. to our own habits, our own patterns. Is that one of exactly. your suggestions? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's the you know, in, in part, just this is where awareness can help. Um, but yeah, I mean, this all goes back to it's not like it's not like you're gaining nine pounds literally because those stores moved in right. your neighborhood. I mean, it's you know, you're doing something to to gain the weight in response. <laughs> um, so I mean, I think yeah, the thing is. Um, yeah, I think of it as, as, uh, just, you know, it's like, like a red flag comes up, you know, yeah. if you know that restaurants and cheap food and available food, it can be a problem for at least some people, then you can be aware, you know, going in. And, and in particular, there were a lot of exciting research I think is going here is in, is talking about kind of moving past just rational responses to incentives and thinking about, you know, more from a you know, psychological perspective of, you know, people have, you can think of it as hot states and cold states, where you're normally in a cold, rational state, and, and then every now and then there could be an impulse trigger that pushes you into this hot state, and then that's where you make these impulse decisions. Hmm. Yeah. And, and so I think, I, I tend to think that's a lot of what you have going on here. I mean, you think about you think about a, a big box store, I mean, you might go in with an idea in your head of what you want to shop for, and then you go in there and you see the displays or the fancy of the samples, right? Yeah. The samples could matter. You have a sample, and then you say, oh, I'm going to buy the whole thing. Um, and then so it's triggering those impulses, and, of course, the stores do that on purpose. You bet. Um, and, and then with restaurants, even maybe more so, I mean, you might go in, they say, and I'm going to order this salad, and then you get in there and you smell something or see something, <laughs> and, and when the moment you get up to the counter, you do something else. So I think the... Uh, you know, in terms of advice, I mean, you, you want the cold state to be making the decisions as much as as much as you can, and uh, and I think what that means is preparation in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. This is where if you have a carefully planned, written out shopping list going into the Walmart, you, you got a better chance of sticking to it. That's if right. Reading the online menus of the restaurant before going in, maybe checking out the nutritional information, make it make a decision going in. You got a better chance of sticking to it. And so I think these are the sort of practical things people can do. It's basic common sense, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Charles Cordemanch, we appreciate you. Great uh, research, interesting discussion as well, and, uh, you know, makes me feel better. Uh, so uh, let me get this clear one more time. I actually have to eat the food. It's not just Walmart moving in that makes me gain weight. That's right. There's I, not something in the air. Okay. You actually have to, to go there and eat the food. Okay. That's good. <laughs> good stuff. Appreciate you, Charles. Great oh, work. You. I appreciate it. You bet. Out of Georgia State. Uh, interesting stuff. You don't think about that. You're like, oh, yay, we got a Walmart. 
yay, we got a Costco. You know, good stuff. Not These are great economic opportunities. And it makes food cheaper, so you might buy more. You might eat more. That's a really good idea. Go in cold, maybe with a really full belly before you go shopping at these places. We'll take a break, my friends. Just trying to give you uh, some information, uh, help you uh, create a healthier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, who would have thunk? Would you have ever, ever in your life thought that a big box store would make you gain weight? And then you go into some of these big box stores and you're like, something's going on. Well, it doesn't. No, it does. The store itself actually... <laughs> adds, it's your personal choices. Adds three pounds to your belly. To your belly. There are people, though, that are susceptible and we would say, well, then grow some character. Yes. Sure. Right. And the guy that's got bad genes doesn't know he even has bad genes and is working 85 hours a week, picks up some corn dogs. Have you had a bad corn family? dog? No. You, corn dogs are great. Corn dogs are gifts from heaven. <clears throat> I used to eat corn dogs for breakfast. Ah, that sounds great. At first it was two. Then it was three. Well, you want a balanced breakfast. Sometimes. And then at three, it's an odd breakfast. I wanted an even one, so I had four. You know what? I used to love a muffin here and there <laughs> until somebody said, hey, muffin top. No, until I figured out how much, how many calories are in one muffin. Yeah, ten, th- 10 million. Yeah. 10 million calories, one muffin. That's close to the actual number. Yeah, 10 million. Seriously. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a bomb. It's a, it's a calorie bomb it's but, a caloric but it's good killer. it tastes oh, really yummy good. yeah yummy costco sells great muffins absolutely a whole like 12 box of them are flat. my heart is racing right now because my wife went to costco yesterday we have all these muffins at home there you go i can't eat them because i can't afford 10 million calories for breakfast just keep walking you'll be fine that's why i need protein and get a corn dog for breakfast is there protein in a corn dog Oh, yeah, there's a hot dog in the middle. No, that's the question. Is there actual protein in the hot dog? Whatever's in the hot dog. It's protein. May or may not qualify as protein. It may be bone meal. It depends. <laughs> Whatever it is, it sounds really yummy. Any other headlines? The, today, Change my thought t- here. Today is National Zipper Day. Oh. So uh, if you think about it, how many items in your closet use a zipper? Everybody check your zipper right now. How many times do you, or how many items do you own that are held it's together up. by this simple yet innovative invention? Some guy, Jimmy Zipper. Since the figure is much too high to count, just celebrate it instead, and it says, "Happy zipping today." Oh, that's a great day. National Where would you zipper be without day. your zipper? Every time before I get up for a speech, my wife turns to me and she's like, "Is your zipper up?" <laughs> you know what I mean? You make one mistake, okay? Yeah. One mistake you in front do, of a large group, and she won't let you live it down. And there's nothing quite as awful as a broken zipper. Like, oh, nothing ruins totally. a day faster than a broken nothing. zipper. I don't know that I've ever had a broken zipper. Really? You've yeah. been that lucky, that fortunate in your life to never experience that. Yeah. I buy heavy-duty zippers. Wow. Like on your backpack when I you're believe, trying to zip it? You always, and it breaks. Oh, yeah. Backpack zippers. Those are just meant to break. Yeah, I guess so. But 
always splurge for a good zipper. That's some advice I'm going to give you for your wedding. Okay, splurge on the good zipper. Good zipper. How can you tell if it's a good zipper? How, it, does it zip? Well, you got to hear the zip. If it is like cheap zipper, that's it. Is that a quality zipper? Do that again. Yep. It's a great zipper. Or you're stepping on a mouse. It's the tonal quality of the zipper. That's how you know. If it's got a good tone to it. It's kind of like when you thump a melon in the produce department. In other news. Oh, we changed the Or actual news rather than the stuff Are we done with that one? Yeah, it just kind of carries on in here. Hulu, the online video streaming service. They have paid just under a million dollars an episode for Seinfeld. Really? There's 180 episodes of Seinfeld. They paid just under a million. Per episode? Per episode. Those guys are still making money. They, uh, they're they expected to announce this uh, either today or tomorrow, officially. They also purchased the 300 episodes and ongoing of the CSI franchise. How can you afford $180 million for episodes that we've I'm, all seen a million times? I'm going to guess they're in, in, in installments every year. Okay. And it's based, Probably a 10-year contract? Probably. And based on the uh, projections that Hulu has for people signing up to watch Seinfeld. So Hulu has that much money? They think so. Think of all the zippers you could buy with $180 million. It's a lot of zippers. High-quality zippers. An unmanned Russian cargo spacecraft ferrying supplies to the International Space Station is yep. plunging back to Earth this morning. Ah, oh boy. Apparently out of control. Somebody's in trouble. The Russian space agency is trying to reestablish contact with the cargo vessel, but it's struggling because the two-ton spacecraft is tumbling as See, it's coming through the atmosphere. Nobody's in it. It's just a... It's just a cargo, just a cargo, yeah, rocket, it's, and it's supposed. Shipment. I think it's supposed to come back. It's, oh, one it's of these, coming back, but now it's coming back out of control. Now you know why? It's because the iPad. Somebody yes, there's probably an iPad. There's an iPad just flipping around in that rocket, and so they're they're saying if they can't regain control of the spacecraft, it'll come down. Very little, if any, of the vessel will survive reentry into Earth's atmosphere because it's tumbling. And I guess the space station won't get those. What delivery. It, I don't know if that actually made the delivery and is coming back or if they lost control beforehand. The story See, was not clear. They're going to be so mad because they, they were expecting something like, oh, I wanted my I wanted my, my iPod. Nope, it's lost. A Texas commissioner yes. is making – he's a ag, Texas agricultural commissioner. Sid Miller wrote a letter to the editor of the Houston Chronicle last week calling for a 10-year ban on deep fat fryers and soda machines in Texas public schools – to be overturned. We get get those fryers back. He, he wrote that in the schools. He wrote that the fight is not about french fries, it's about freedom. In response to arguments about childhood obesity and health, Miller stated that school districts, not the state, should have the freedom to make these decisions. I will always support decision making at the local level. Fat fryers in the school for freedom. <laughs> It almost makes you cry. It does. Like I almost – I had a tear. I was so, I, I was getting a tear. I understand what he's saying, but do you think he reads it before he submits the email? And... Stay out of our schools. Over deep fat fried fruit. If we want our kids to be fat and obese, that is a local decision. That has a nice ring to it, like freedom fryers. Mm. Freedom fryers. Well, we yeah. used to have freedom That's fries, really cool. right, after yeah. the war. So freedom fryers in our schools. You know what? Wow. We got Baltimore burning. Yes. And Texas is worrying about their fat fryer. It's about freedom. Okay. 
Get off my back. <laughs> Can a guy not have a fat fryer? Oh, boy. I mean, I, okay, whatever. Just, you know, Baltimore's burning. Earthquakes. Earthquakes in Nepal. There's some important things happening. We just found out that big box stores may be adding to our weight, and you're fighting for a fryer. And you're wrapping it in a flag. Flags for freedom fries. Fryers. Okay. God bless America. Any other news? How much time do we have? Ten seconds. Yeah. Okay. Yogurt may not be as healthy as you thought it was. Ah. Really? Apparently the rest of the world understands that yogurt is full of sugar. Yeah. But here it's a health food. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, just grab yourself a healthy yogurt. So they did a study with 4,000 people nearly for four years found no correlation between eating yogurt and better overall health. Really? Yeah, it used to be. That's... You know, 60s, 70s, 80s, that's women would, they would market it to women. Women are going to get healthy by eating yogurt. So it's good, but. And cottage cheese, but. Might not be helping you at all. Okay, good lesson. Good lesson. Okay, folks, we're going to take a break. Just here to help you live longer. That's all we want is that you live longer and that you get your fryers out of the hands of those government crazies that are trying to keep fries away from your kids. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back next hour right here on BYU Radio.